I had asked members of this community to send me items of interest. I probably asked like a week ago or so. And Ronit, who is here tonight, delivered. She sent me so much material that I'm going to have to spread it out over so many weeks. And I encourage everybody, as you guys share here in the Discord group and in other places, if, if something is of interest, uh, that is um, you know, topical, of, of importance to our discussion, be sure to send it my way, and I would love to look at it. So the first thing we're going to be looking at tonight, I'm going to be dropping some photos in here, is lightning. But not just lightning, we will be looking at lightning and the Grand Canyon. As you could probably tell if you've snooped around on my cosmology um, website, I love pictures of nature and lightning. Specifically, we're going to be talking about electrical scarring or negative electric discharge scarring. Now, I will warn you that the photos I'm going to drop in here are graphic. Um, they are not intended to be um, uh, provocative or uh, pornographic or anything like that. This is just, you know, medical photos of people damaged by lightning. So the first one we see here is a scarred body. Now, the, these are, it looks like two different scarred bodies, but you can see the, the arm and the back, and they've been scarred by lightning or a, um, a electrical charge. I'm not sure which of the two, but you can see there the, the discharge scarring and how it forms these, uh, these geometric patterns all over their body. And it's, it's referred to as a, a treeing effect. And you can see that throughout nature as well, where electrical charges or discharges created this tree effect, right? So again, this picture here is another, I, I was really asking myself, uh, pondering whether I should share this or not. This is of a woman in a, in a bra. I am not sharing this again to be provocative or perverse. I just, this is a great photo example of electrical discharge. And I think she was uh, struck by lightning. I'm not 100% positive on that. But here you can see the same sort of tree effect going down her neck. All yeah, the way no, that's, that's lightning. Yes, thank you. Um, you can see it going all the way down to her stomach. All right. So I'll show you one more. This is an older photo here that I found. And you're seeing some common things here all the way across. You're seeing these, these uh, electrical uh, lightning scarring on people's bodies. All right, well, let's take it back to the Grand Canyon. This is a thank you for our uh, boys in space who <laughs> are sending us photos of the Earth. Uh, this is just probably like a high weather balloon or something like that, a high altitude. But this, again, is the Grand Canyon. And we're seeing some very similar shapes and patterns here. Now, I've heard a lot of different theories. Uh, not a lot. I, I've heard some theories on the Grand Canyon ever since coming over to the Flat Earth Movement. One of the more uh, popular ones is that the Grand Canyon was a quarry for, for giants. It's interesting. There could be some history of giants there. I don't know. We've 
probably all read about the Egyptian artifacts we found, or what they say is Egyptian. Uh, mummies, all sorts of things. Uh, there's thought to be cities in there. One of the more recent theories is that this is a melted city. And the reason for that is because it appears that there was a type of civilization here. So there's a lot to it. Now, you all know evolution teaches that over billions of years, the Colorado uh, River wasted and weared around at the soil and the sediment and went through the geological columns and worked its way down. The young earth creationists will make a, a good attempt at showing how you know layers can be formed very quickly. If you've ever done like a sand experiment and you can watch uh, you know, just layers of sand get formed in, in 30 seconds or a minute very, very quickly, like with the tide of the, of the sea. So that's kind of interesting. But here we see some electrical patterns. Here's a, this is called the Lichtenberg. Uh, it's kind of known as like the Lichtenberg effect, but you see a treeing effect here. And this was de developed where they could actually make this in machines with uh, electrical figures. Now, what's unique about the Grand Canyon is that there's crisscross lines. And it says right here, in a flat, even plain, you will never find a river crisscrossing another river. The Grand Canyon crisscrosses uh, may have formed as a result of neg negative electric discharge scarring. And they, they add here, it cannot be explained by water erosion alone. Now, oh, let me just throw this in. This is also another one of the uh, Lichtenberg uh, models. And here we actually see this is in a solid uh, surface. I'm not sure what material that is. It's like in a bowl with a pipe, but you can still see the electrical effects there. So really interesting. Now, we're going to... So clearly, whatever happened at the Grand Canyon... I shouldn't say clearly, but it, it seems very plausible that whatever happened at the Grand Canyon was a major electrical event. Uh, you know, it could have been, I don't know, some sort of electrical discharge that shaped that whole landscape there. But it, we find the same things all over the world. So I went to Google Earth and I was finding photographs, for, or at least from Google Earth. This one comes from Australia. And you could see the same sort of patterns all over. Now, this could be from rivers over thousands of years old forming this. But I don't know. I'll let you decide. We're going to look through these. This one comes from, it's listed as Columbia. Let's see, what is this here? Here you see a lot of the same patterns. Now, what's interesting is this one is so far up. You, you could look down there and you say, well, I know I could see how these rivers would, you know, the water would kind of part off there and form all those different patterns. But when we get, to, to the next one in Egypt, you're going to see that it's not just the river that forms it. It's actually the earth. This one, I assume, comes from the Nile. It's listed as Egypt. And if you look closely there, I, I love this one. I mean, that is a pure treeing effect there. And if you look closely at the land, you can see how it was all shaped by the same patterns. All the land. It's like a, a huge electrical discharge across the land. That's what it looks like to me. This is, guys, this is like... If I'm looking at what I think I'm looking at, this is Day of the Lord stuff. This is the fire that destroyed the world. Like, people didn't have a chance. If you guys have ever been in a, in a one of those summer lightning storms when you get the humidity and you know it rolls in at 2 o'clock, 
and just it gets dark and the wind comes in and that lightning is tearing down and booming and your whole house is shaking you know you get on your knees and you're like praying to yah that you survive it like you know i i love a good lightning storm because it 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 humbles me and brings me closer to my creator but if this if we're seeing what i think i'm seeing these people didn't stand a chance they were just boom gone right this next picture this is another one from australia I think this one's a little bit more interesting than the last one. Again, so you could see the, the land patterns a little bit better. It's not just the river. It's just the land itself, just everywhere, is forming these, these treeing patterns. This one, I don't know what to make of this one. I, I decided to kind of throw it in here. This one comes from... I don't know where this one comes from. Uh, oh, Spain. This one comes from Spain. And again, that's water, and it's just very odd that the water would form all those different patterns and alleyways, and just very interesting. If you guys ever saw the Disney movie The Last Dragon, it was called um, Ray and the Last Dragon. They had a, a map on there that I think they model, modeled after this river. If you look at it, it, it looks very much like a serpent. And you see some of the tree patterns spreading out from it there. Like you, you get this idea that there was a river here, but then it kind of, kind of fractured out everywhere. Here's a picture from Russia. And uh, this one's pretty insane. And this one is, it's not like that looks like elevation to me guys like a lot of elevation you could see the snow there you could see where the deeper areas is a it's a, a rich green color and then it becomes lighter green and then you get to the the peaks where there's snow and and that pattern that electrical pattern is every it's not just the water so when i look at this this is kind of one of the giveaways you know you, we're seeing that it's not just water over billions of years that is you know cutting into these canyons and forming this stuff this one comes from Saudi Arabia. So we're hitting up every continent on Earth and showing that this event, this, this electrical uh, discharge, this scarring event, appears to be everywhere. And people will, who look into this, they'll call it uh, geometry, like they'll call it fractal geometry. And they'll say, oh, this is neat. Look at this. But I, I just I don't think that they realize what they're actually looking at. Maybe they don't have the context for it. You know, they have the context of billions of years and that kind of stuff. And we know, obviously, that evolution is, is ridiculous. I don't even need to mention that. Uh, this is, so hitting every continent, this one comes from South Africa. And this one, again, this is really fascinating because it looks like a, a giant leaf. And the rivers are down at the bottom, but it, it, the elevation goes up, up this, like, to this plateau up there. And you could just see where it, this... Uh, this these fractures these this treeing took place this one is another picture from spain so this might well this might be around the same place as the other picture interesting with your consideration and my last two but certainly not least this this to all my canadian friends out there that one's pretty insane and and again you you can see the 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 deeper the rich green higher elevation snow but you can see the same lines in there and so if you're if you're saying this is just a river it doesn't make sense at this level like it, 
clearly, like water didn't do that. And again, last but not least, we are going to the United States of America. And maybe somebody can actually tell me what river this is. I'm not exactly sure, but that's pretty crazy. Um, I don't think that's the Mississippi. Um, I don't even know what that is, but that I'm told that's somewhere in the Midwest. Well, there you go. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, right. I know. And so when we're talking about, I've never really covered anything on the day of the Lord scripturally, but that will be a really interesting study to do and then start looking at evidence on the earth of a total destruction of it, like, like reshaping of everything, you know, mountains, you know, sliding into the sea and just, you know, whole cities melting and burning and, you know, Babylon being destroyed. Like, that's what this looks like to me. And as I've had, as I've pointed out on my timeline, Second Peter is really important to this discussion because he tells us that in the past, Yahuwah always destroyed the earth with water. Uh, we see the the recreation events or the uh, the reset with Genesis one. We see Noah's flood, the the war of the Titans. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but they you know turned into mountains and stone and that stuff sort of thing. Probably water was involved with that. But Peter tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah was the cutoff. From Sodom and Gomorrah onwards, it's going to be fire. And so what we're seeing here is it looks like electrical. Just want to kind of throw that out there. I don't think I don't think Noah's flood did this. All right. So another thing that Ronit sent me, I also painstakingly wrote this out in an article. So I'm going to pull it up for you guys. If you guys would like to follow along, we're going to read this. Now, there's a, re there's a very specific reason that I'm going over this article tonight. I, I just dropped a link in there for the Hawaiian Gazette, Friday, January 11th, 1907. If you guys have been in the, the Flat Earth Movement for the last several years, you guys saw this back in 2015, 2016. And when this was first dropped in my mailbox back then, I, probably the first time I encountered this map was 2016, I immediately wrote it off as a hoax. Now, just so you guys know, uh, I still am. And you might be asking, well, well, why am I going to share it with you guys then? Well, I'll get to that. And there's a very specific reason. I feel like this article reads off like a, like a Masonic piece. And one of the reasons that I feel it's a hoax is because it is the Hawaiian Gazette that is publishing it. And if you look closely at the map, they go out of their way to draw the Hawaiian islands and pronounce them very large on there. And I'm like, okay, you made your point. You know, we're putting Hawaii on this thing. So what's interesting about this map, though, is that there's no, there's no Antarctica. All right. So now when people would show me this map and they'd go like, oh, this is, this is the true map. I'm like, well, where's Antarctica? And they'd be like, well, it, it, it's there. And I'm like, I don't see it. And they're like, well, those islands are past Antarctica. Well, I, and I would be like, well, show me where Antarctica is. It's not there. But we're going to talk about that. Let, I'm going to go ahead and open up this article. And let's go through it. And I'll make a little bit notes as I go along. One of the reasons being, one of the reasons we're doing this exercise is because this was published. Well, I'll get to the one in the 60s. But if you guys recall, at the turn of the last century, there was a lot of flat earth talk going around. And I am very convinced that 
it was, I'm convinced now that just like it is in the last several years, it was all controlled. And, you know, they were controlling the conversation and then killing the conversation. So let's get into this. This is the Hawaiian Gazette, Friday, January 11th, 1907. And the article title is called, Was This World Map Made 10 Centuries Ago? Which is interesting in and of itself that they're, I don't know where they're getting this information from that is a thousand years old. But they're saying it's a thousand years old. And that's really interesting in the whole missing time um, debate, the Millennial Kingdom debate, and so on. And this is what it says. Stranger almost than the manuscript found in a copper cylinder, and they're saying that this, this map was found in a copper cylinder, is the copy of a map which came across the seas to Honolulu from a Buddhist temple in the mountains of central Japan. Now, I don't know how they vet this. I don't know how they, how they can prove that it came from this Buddhist temple, but it is what it is. It is a map of the world made 1,000 years ago. Again, they're making some wild claim here that I don't know why I should believe that. It is what it is. Dr. Kobayashi, the well-known Japanese physician and surgeon of Honolulu, has received a copy of the map, which he believes to have been made by Chinese priests 10 centuries ago. This map is drawn on the principle of the Mercator projection, so the AE map, showing the North Pole as the center of a circle in which are the continents of North and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. You're all familiar with that. The map was found, and this is uh, the doctor, the good doctor talking. The map was found by my brother in a Japanese temple in the mountains of Japan, said Dr. Kobayashi. It has been hidden from the Japanese government in modern times, just as it was in ancient times. For in olden days, such a map would have been destroyed by the authorities. According to, uh, and see, that, that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, my perspective here is that the authorities actually rolled this map out. So, uh, you know, you kind of kind of think in opposites here. According to a letter, the original map was brought from China by a Buddhist priest and concealed in this temple. Ten years ago, my brother was a consumptive, uh, was a consumptive. Although I was a physician, he did not wish to be treated with medicines. So pay attention. They're going to roll out the loony bin here, and they're going to show that, um, you know, the people that don't go by Western medicine, right? They're, they're flat earthists. He decided to go into the mountains and attempt to cure by himself. For 10 years, he has remained there and used his willpower to effect a cure. Today, he is a well man. I mean, this whole story just sounds kooky when you just, you know, read this. During his stay there, he found this map. He, he evolved from it a theory of the flatness of the earth. So from this map alone, he evolved this theory, despite all modern facts showing it to be a sphere. See, they have to throw this in here, and it gets, it, gets, it gets even funnier. This theory has been his one aim in life. He is an artist, and in order to demonstrate his theory, he made beautiful drawings, picturesque and attractive to the eye, in which mechanical, astronomical, and engineering methods are shown. My brother goes back to the days of Columbus and Amerigo Vespucci. So they had to throw Columbus. They always have to throw Columbus into these things. Because, you know, Columbus, you know, proved that we live on a, on a globe. It's the same thing as when they say, you know, like the, the ships disappearing over the horizon. Same thing. Who, he says, sailed for a new country, believing that by sailing directly in one direction, general direction, they would ultimately come to the place. 
We moderns know that a vessel sailing from a port and going continually in a general easterly manner will arrive at the same place. The vessel, of course, goes around the globe. My brother's theory is that one sails about a vast plain as one would sail around the edges of a bowl. The illustrations accompanying the map are beautiful examples of Japanese art. No more attractive book of geography has ever been compiled. I don't even know if this book exists. I don't know if his brother's real. I, I, I don't know. This is still like this map has been going around and it's all still a mystery to us. It is a mass of cherry blossoms. Fujiyama's beautiful blue seas dotted with the sails of junks and sampons. There are landscapes and seascapes and bizarre pictures of Japanese women designed along old-time styles, but in every sheet of such picture, the engineering lines are brought out in a way that does not mar the picture. With the text matter explaining each page, the geography should be easily understood. I don't. That's so weird that he goes off on this whole rant. It has nothing to do with this map. It is it's such a strange article. Dr. Kobayashi now has all the original sheets, scores of them, and these he will return to Japan to his brother, who intends to have them put in the hands of publishers. It will be one of the most novel publications of the period. Again, if his brother is so concerned that the government's going to destroy it, it's so weird that he sends it to his brother to give to journalists at a major newspaper. It just, the whole story doesn't make sense. The original map of which a copy drawn by Dr. Kobayashi's brother, and of which the accompanying cut is a tracing, is worm-eaten and barely holds together. The above map, with all the consonants and even the Hawaiian Islands shown, was evidently not made by the priests who traced the original lines. Here's a, if you need to see a picture closer up of the actual map, there it is. Now, Again, this whole article just seems like it, it's just too obvious. It, it, it like it, it, it was almost like he was he was making the he was making these statements based on notes, and they were trying to. I, I don't know what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the truth out there and then crush it. But the reason I bring this up is because of this bad boy right here, the moon map. Yes, I'm on the moon map again. And what's interesting about the moon map, as you will recall, is that there's no Antarctica. Not as we have come to know it with the AE map. There's no uh, ice wall that goes around the entire Earth. The, the individual who has put a lot of work into the moon map has shown that Antarctica can be all these little locations right here. You can see all the, the different countries' flags. And he has actually measured from like uh, Africa, uh, South Africa, and also South America, the, the Cape there, and to all the distances on the globe of where these countries are in Antarctica and showing how they actually match up on this map. So I find it really interesting. I'm not saying that this is an exact match, but I almost feel like it's very coded and it was per put out there purposely. It was just last week I watched the movie with my children. It was called Mysterious Island 2. I don't recommend it. It wasn't very good. It was a really lazy, sloppy movie. It starred The Rock. I think the original had Brandon Fraser in it. It was like a Jules Verne movie based on Mysterious Island. And what was interest what I found interesting about the plot line is that in order to find this mysterious island, they had to combine the the books of Jules Verne, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, and the author of 
Gulliver's Travels. I can't remember his name at the moment. But what they were saying is, is all these authors were actually writing about one island and they were coding it that you had to look at three books, three separate books and put the maps together to find it. And I was like, well, that's really fascinating because we know they're all Freemasons. They're all working together. And in fact, they were writing about something that I kind of do believe is factual. It's kind of interesting when you look at all the literature in the early movies, think of like King Kong, The Lost World. Tons of movies like that about these this, these lost continents and islands missing in time that people don't know about. So just wanted to throw that out there. The next thing I wanted to cover was this was actually shared in the group today, amazingly, just after I had actually published the article today. This is on the the moon being a mirage reflection of the Earth's surface. Now, what's interesting about this article there it is it popped up it says moon a mirage reflection of earth's surface contends monroe man i also have the i had it and now it's gone oh wait here it is i also painstakingly wrote this out for you guys so for the research community this is an article that I put on cosmology, which you guys can read and follow along because I don't, you obviously can't squint your eyes and read this article, which I did. I had to squint my eyes and go through it. But I want you to notice the timestamp on here. It says May 3rd, 1964. So Kennedy has been assassinated, though, if you know my, my view on that, that was a hoax. He wasn't really assassinated. But he's been assassinated now for six months in the whereabouts. It was November of 1963. The, the moon missions have taken off, the Apollo moon missions. And by this time, the Soviet Union has actually already pulled out of the space race. They were on top of it in the 1950s with Sputnik. They put the first, I think, chimpanzee in space the first man in space, and all of a sudden they're like, nope, we're not going to play that game anymore. We're not going to do it. So this is the comes from the Bridgeport. It was published on Sunday. Oh, the Bridgeport Sunday Post, published on May 3rd, 1964. And this is the article. Again, now with this one here, I'm not really, I'm, I'm undecided. Was this, was this guy legit, or did they just roll this guy out again as a hoax? And I say that because in the 60s, they were rolling out all these guys with these different theories, really interesting theories. There's that whole um, uh, special that the BBC did in like 1967, where they were showing all these guys and saying how space is fake and, you know, all that you can't land on the moon, that kind of stuff, which this guy here, he's saying you can't, he's one of those guys. He's like, you can't land on the moon. And they rolled these guys out just to debunk them. Right? It's so fascinating because this guy has some really interesting things to consider, some potential truths, and they rolled them out just to prove him wrong. Because the people, I mean, you, you pitch yourself, it's 1964, you believe you're, li you're on a spinning globe. Why? Because you trust your government, your, your government tells you they're not going to lie about this. And you see a guy who's defying the billions of dollars that are being put through taxpayer money into NASA and he's telling you that it's all a hoax and you're like this guy this guy's crazy this guy's off his why can't he get with it right and this is this is how they do it they, they roll these ideas out just to defeat them and destroy them 
A House Space Subcommittee in Congress has started a detailed probe of why the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, if you ever wondered what NASA stood for, that's it, has been unable to get close-up pictures of the moon despite this nation's expenditures of $250 million to accomplish this objective since 1959. An amateur scientist in Monroe says NASA has failed because the moon does not exist. Well, that's some uh, really progressive thinking for 1964. It is only a reflection of the earth, contends Joseph A. Bodner, a Brookside Trail, who backs his deduction and study of eight years with photographs, maps, charts, and articles on the earth and skies. Uh, I will point out here, it's really interesting in this day and age, you know, on the internet age, we research something for like a day, then we move to the next thing, and then we move to the next thing, and the next thing. You have to remember, before the internet, not that long ago, a person would only really be experienced in one or two areas because you just research that. It takes you 10, 20, 30 years to do it. Well, this guy has been researching it for eight years. Mr. Um, Mr. Bodnar is convinced that the waters of the oceans, which occupy three quarters of the earth, act as a vast mirror when the sun, which is 109 and a half times the size of the earth, shines on the surface and reflects the land and water masses against nature's own projection screen, the atmosphere. He illustrates this conclusion by filling a round dishpan with water in which he places two bowls, bottoms up, and then darkening the room and shining a flashlight on the pan as the sun does on the earth. The rim of the dishpan, the water in it, and the bottom of the bowls recreate themselves on the ceiling. Well, that in and of itself is really fascinating. There's been times I've looked at the moon and, and thought the same things, and there's other times I look at it and go, oh, it seems solid, but then other times it seems, you know, transparent. According to this theory, the moon, as seen from the United States, is a reflection, okay, pay attention to this, of the land masses of Asia, Africa, Australia, the Soviet Union, and China. This is what we're going over now with the moon map. You know, they, they leave out the fact that, you know, there's a lot more land there. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know what his theories were on this. I don't know if he was putting that together or not. The real reason for the man in the moon projection is the varying geographical differences between land contours and oceans. Water shows white and land black, and which is exactly what we've seen with the, with the moon map. Thus, the golden globe in the sky man has admired and gazed at for centuries is only a mirage, Mr. Bodner concludes. His startling assumption, he believes, has already been deduced or is at least suspected by the Soviet Union, according or accounting for that country's cancellation to race America to the moon. I misspelled that there. I put America to the moon. It also explains why the last, I told you I had to, uh, to handwrite this thing out. It also explains why the last six American moonshots made with camera equipped capsules failed. Well, isn't that? <laughs> they were, okay, that's just funny right there. And no photographs will ever be taken of the moon, Mr. Bodner reiterates, because the moon simply is not there. Now, this is where that entire generation screwed up. If these guys are legitimate, uh, just like Samuel Shinton, who was a flat earthist, 
they were very gullible in that they put a lot of trust and faith in the government. Like they were, they were coming at this like the government wouldn't lie to them. The government's not lying about this. They're not taking their money and running with it. They're actually doing experiments and coming to the wrong conclusions, and that's why they're failing. Samuel Shinson felt the same way. Like he was like, you know, oh, they'll find out. They'll see that the Earth is flat. They just haven't found it out yet. It's like, no, unfortunately, they are going to take pictures of the moon, and you will be debunked. Unfortunately, that's just the way it works. No, so I, I actually kind of wonder, like, if a guy like this. If he ever put it together, you know, when they finally did land on the moon, you know, in a in a studio in Lookout Mountain, you know, if he ever was like, oh, wait a second, that's a stage, you know, that's like a that's a movie studio, or if he's like, oh man, I guess I was wrong, I don't know. No photographs will ever be taken of the moon, Mister Bodner reiterates, because the moon simply is not there. Based on this speculation, the licensed real estate broker by profession firmly states that a space vehicle cannot land or establish a base on reflection and cannot survey, scan, or study what is not there. I definitely agree with that. You know, I'm one of those guys. The moon cannot be landed upon. The Stevenson resident, who is a graduate mechanical draftsman and a pioneer in the X-ray field, well, isn't that interesting, wants the opportunity to expound his theory before the President of the United States and the members of Congress. Sounds very gullible to me. Why? To save the taxpayers from five to twenty billions of dollars, NASA says it will need for it uh, for the Apollo, the Project Apollo, and future moon landings. Well, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? Have save all that money, and to reorient our scientific ambitions into more constructive or I love this realistic channels. Wouldn't that be nice? The next photographic moonshot launch is due in June. I'm not sure what uh, that would if that's like Apollo one or what that's referring to. But while we are wasting our energies and funds on an optical illusion, Mr. Bodnar says Russia, according to news dispatches, is building orbital space platforms with. Okay, this I have to pause. This is great because they always throw this in here, and so they're like putting this this fear into Americans. They're they're this is where like another lie is coming in. But they're making Americans sit there and think, yeah, why, why are we going to the moon if Russia's not going to the moon? And they're just building laser beams in space to kill us. Like, it seems like you know, Russia knows what's going on, right? So back this up. While we are wasting our energies and funds on an optical illusion, Mr. Bodner says Russia, according to new dispatches, <laughs> is building orbital space. Space platforms with hatchways to carry an atom bomb, which can be pinpointed over key American cities and strategic areas like defense factories, naval yards, Air Force bases, uh, missile arsenals, the Capitol, and White House. This is one of those reasons why I hope you guys have all, like, maybe all read my paper on the atomic bomb hoax, or I did those, I made those into podcasts. Maybe I should go over them again in this group, but if they had atomic bombs, uh, they would have used them. I I put no faith in this the sociopathic, psychopathic people running our world. A district manager for the Westinghouse Electric Corporation for 25 years, Mr. Bodnar is prepared to have a speculation ridiculed. And they had to throw this in again. They always do. There he is. Christopher Columbus, too. 
<laughs> he notes gently, was scoffed at for his notion that the world was round by the leading scientists of his day who were sure it was flat. Giving you three options here. Oh, so. Okay, let's mute that. All right. <laughs> now, this is one of those things, you know, they, they do these resets throughout history. Well, they also do resets of ideas, and this is one of them. If you were alive in the 1950s or 1960s, everyone seemed to believe, and the media was putting it out there, that Columbus was the guy that proved the world was a globe. And they've really flipped that script now. They're like, no, we, no, we never felt that way. That's not true. Everybody knew it was a globe before Columbus. But you see paper after paper and textbooks and everything's from back then saying that Columbus is the guy that proved to the world that the earth was not flat. So they flipped the script on this. And Columbus was not a scientist, he said, but a humble navigator. He also reminds that Albert Einstein also was laughed at when he first propounded his theory on relativity. Now it's just getting really wacky. They had to throw Albert Einstein in there. The world, he observed sadly, always pokes fun at anything new. But because of his concern for his country's safety and prestige, Mr. Bodnar is determined to brave the inevitable comments of derision. If the lunar landing is pushed too far by NASA and it should fail, he warned, America's prestige will really hit bottom. And Mr. Bodnar does not want to see that happen. He cites the recent... Uh, there's a lot of microphones. Oh, here, uh, Hank, your microphone is off. Oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Okay. Yes. I I'm not going to change turn his microphone off because he's a, a fellow administrator and that would be cruel. So <laughs> Hank like runs this site, so he's awesome. Um, all right. Where was I? Let's see. And Mr. Bodnar does not want to see that happen. He cites the recent pronouncements of former President Eisenhower urging further moon probes before a landing is attempted and Russia, Russia's lack of interest in the project to support his contention. The Russians are exceedingly clever and also conservative. They must have an extremely good reason for canceling their original intention to race us to the moon. So <laughs> uh, I, I actually, you know, I, I agree with him there, but. You know, I look back at this and I see that obviously the Soviet Union and the United States were all in on it together. While much has been written about the moon, Mr. Bodnar says most of it is a hopeless hodgepodge of contradictory assertions largely based on guesswork. Let us see, he offers, what a practical man can do to help in a situation that seems to complicated and unfathomable. In a dissertation of his beliefs, Mr. Bodner writes, in flying over a body of water, one can see the submerged bottom showing unevenness of contours. Now, this part is uh, really interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about this, but pay attention to this. What is really seen on the moon is the Earth's ocean floor with its studded craters and unevenness of the bottom of the ocean with its peaks and possible volcanic action mirrored through the sea. The moon is really attached to the earth through reflection. It can be compared to a dumbbell, with the, bell, with the ball at one end being four times the size of the other. The larger one is the earth and the smaller end the moon, and the bar holding the two balls together represent the sun's reflection. Mr. Bodnar also believes that the tides are caused by the rotation of the earth, 
not by gravitational pull of the moon. Unfortunately, he, you know, it's like he's, he's ahead of the game enough to, you know, he, he's able to think outside the box that the moon is not capable of being landed upon. And yet he's still putting a lot of faith in Albert Einstein. I, I don't get it, but it is what it is. If you take 360 degrees, which is a full circle and divide it into four quarters, you have 90 degrees for each quarter segment. It takes the Earth approximately 24 hours for one revolution, divided by six hours for each 90 degree segment, blah, blah, blah. This is all just dribble. Thus creating low and high tides every six hours caused by the uh, centrifugal action of the Earth rotating on its axis. Also, the seasons and the actual speed of rotation of the Earth on its axis affects the tides. So, what he's saying here is that. Uh, and at least he's thinking originally. Um, I, I believe Isaac Newton, uh, officially, according uh, to official history, like the one thing he was most displeased with in his own theories was that the moon caused the tides, and everyone kind of just went with it. So at least here he's trying to figure out, like, okay, the moon does not call this the tides; it's actually the rotation of the Earth. Which, you know, there's some cognitive dissonance there because it's like, well, wait a second, if the if the rotation of the Earth is causing the tides, then well, you guys can figure that one out. You know why we feel no motion. The water feels the motion, but we don't, whatever, you know. Airplanes, butterflies, clouds, all that. And if that's too complicated, it is too complicated to understand. Mr. Bodner makes it simpler by saying that if you fill a pail full of water, oh, not this again, this experiment, ugh, and swing it around fast enough, the water won't spill out. <laughs> how about if you turn it upside down and then swing it around let's try that but if you held the pail of water in a horizontal position the water would spill out proving mr bodner says that it is the earth's rotation that prevents the water from spilling that makes no i, I still don't get that maybe a brighter mind understands how you could um hold it maybe he's not saying you can hold it upside down i don't know in the course of his studies, Mr. Bodner has arrived at some other startling conclusions. To wit, when John Glenn and other astronauts were launched into space, they never really orbited around the Earth. The nose cones remained stationary. It was the Earth that did the turning. Our spacemen only had sufficient fuel to guide their capsules for landing, he claims. He also states that the Earth is not spherical, but elliptical, shaped like a tomato with both ends cut off. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh it's almost like I think he's kind of going with like a uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's like egg shaped earth or pear shaped earth or something like that. And finally, to support his contention that the moon is a mirage, he asked these puzzling questions. One, why is the moon the only heavenly body that is so large and why is it approximately a quarter of the size of the earth? And answer is it is because the moon is a reflection of the earth. Number two, Russia is supposed to have projected her satellite to the moon in 32 to 36 hours, whereas NASA computes it will take a range of 66 to 72 hours. Why the great difference in time? Oh, that's interesting. I actually have never stumbled upon that before. Number three, why does the moon turn and travel with the Earth? And answer is because it is a reflection. Why is it that the moon looks different to the Russians? And answers because while we see the continents of Asia, Africa, Australia, et cetera, and et cetera, the Soviets see the reflections of North and South America. Bodner's ex exploratory bent is not confined to the realm of more conjecture. He once wrote to President Kennedy, volunteering to sub for Ham, the ch uh, chimponaut, the chimpanzee astronaut, America's first space pilot. 
But NASA wrote back saying that the chimpanzee was better trained. Ouch. I've been laughed at all my life, Mr. Bodden reflected ruefully. See, they had to throw that in there at the end that he volunteered to be a chimp. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's just, ugh. But that's all right. I can take it. Mrs. Bodner, his wife, a former RN who tirelessly serves as her husband's secretary in typing up his theories and letters to various officials, is also faithful to his views. Most scientists disagree in their finds about the moon and added quietly, I think my husband's hypothesis makes just as much sense as theirs. That's nice to have a very supportive wife. All right, before turning on tonight to our next part, does anyone have any comments on anything we've gone over? If not, that's okay. I'll just move right on. There's a lot I still have to get to tonight. All right. I look for these things. I have them all set up on my computer, and then they're gone, and I can't find them anywhere. All right. So this next part tonight is the letter of Lentulus. Now, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. The letter of Lentulus is, by all accounts, you speak to any person on earth, this is a forgery, a fake of the Middle Ages. All right? So I'm just throwing that out there. I am not saying that what I'm about to read is in any ways legitimate. I think it is, I am bringing this to your attention because I think it is worth, um, it's worth a peekaboo. Or Lixilu. So I'm going to drop this in here, or I'm not going to drop this in here. This is the letter of Lentulus. So I will be reading from this. And I wrote a little, t uh, my thoughts kind of in the introduction before going into this. This is the, o if this is legit, this is the only known depiction of Yahusha that we have. But the scholars, you tell me, no true scholar would ever give the letter of Lentulus a second glance, you say. The scholars have proven it to be a medieval forgery, and we should listen to the scholars more often, because the scholars understand his story better than we do, because they paid a Jesuit institution money to receive their degree and then make educated, and then make educated guesses which might inform our reality. That's why we should listen to them. Because they know what they're talking about. And so, let's not question them. Did I get that right? After going through those two articles on NASA and the moon landing, um, <laughs> hopefully you understand that we have every right to question them. Look, I'm not saying the letter of Lentulus is legitimate in any way, shape, or form. I really don't know either way. I do find it fascinating, though fascinating reasons that I will be going over tonight. The fact that it apparently derives from the Middle Ages would have me automatically discrediting it only a couple of years ago, which is probably the intent. I've come to learn a thing or two since then, and here's what I can tell you. The more I come to knowledge about the reality of the realm around us, which our controllers are desperately attempting to hide from us via indoctrination at every level, including but certainly not inclusive to the academic the more I realize how much I don't know. It is only after coming to terms with the mud flood event that I decided to give extra-biblical literature another chance. I had formally written most of it off as a counterfeit enterprise, forgeries of a darker age, probably just as my controllers had intended. But then something unexpected happened. There was wisdom to be discovered in them, 
And as a group, for those of you who've been around, at least the last year, we've been going over a lot of these books. Not simply confirmation of what we already deem acceptable in seminary. No, missing puzzle pieces. We're talking peripheral vision. There's the reason why our controllers have gone out of their way to discredit a great number of works. They don't want to be exposed. Now, I'll admit, describing Yahushua HaMashiach as the so-called Lentilista seems a little suspicious. Why would any Roman official go out of their way to describe him as one might in a painting? Also, you will tell me the letter accredits Publius Lentilus as the governor of Judea and that there was no such Lentilus in the books. Do you seriously think the forgers of the Middle Ages didn't know that or know any better? Were they that stupid? I mean, if they wanted to create a forgery with a certain fragrance of authority, why not just make up a letter by Pontius Pilate? We have those, by the way. Something like that would sell. And anyways, the earliest letter of Publius Lentulus never mentions him being a governor. He simply identifies himself as Publius Lentulus. So the governor of Judea, guys, was added later. Uh, I think probably to uh, discredit it. Who is Publius Lentulus? We aren't told. Seems odd for a forgery. For all I know, Publius Lentulus was intel. Even though Roman spy networks were perhaps not as sophisticated as the NSA, why underestimate Rome's networks of spooks? They were keeping tabs on anybody of importance, and that includes the Herods. And by that, I mean the Herods were keeping tabs on people, too. They had spies and out in the streets. You know, They would approach you and ask you questions and get in, into conversations with you. If a prophet arrived in any prov providential city of Rome, especially in Yerushalayim, you can be sure the boys down at the local lodge would want to know if he was one of theirs. And if not, keep tabs on him. Better yet, warn top brass. And before anyone points out the similarity, uh, uh, sentimentalities presented by Lentilus, as if that cancels everything, I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if Rome was always on the lookout for the next day. Or I should say die. I'm sorry. I mis mispronounced that. Now, for this letter, um, I am keeping, I'm going to be saying Jesus Christus. Uh, he probably, this letter, if it is legit, it would have been written in Greek or Latin first. He would not have been probably saying, you know, Hebrew names like Yahushua HaMashiach. Um, and uh, I can't bring myself to say God. If you saw my my video I did on um, androgyny, there's a reason for that. But anyways, so let's get into it. It's a short, this is a really short uh, little letter, but I think it's worth all of us kind of just thinking about and considering. I understand, O Kaiser, you wish to learn some things about the virtuous man named Jesus Christus, who the town considers like a prophet and like day or die, and who, his disciples say, is the son of die, maker of heaven and earth. Now, there's variations on this letter, and this one does not... Uh, this is the slightly longer letter, but it leaves out a very important component in here where he, he says that uh, the, the local, the Hebrews, call him the prophet of truth. I really like that because that is something that doesn't seem like a forgery of the Middle Ages to me. Like that's straight out of like Qumran type of talk. Truthfully, 
O Kaiser, wonderful things are heard about him every day that goes by. To explain it briefly, he resuscitates the dead and heals those who are sick. He is a medium-sized man of benign looks and uh, greatest dignity, which is also reflected on his face, so that when a person is evaluating him, one infallibly feels the necessity of loving and fearing him. His long hair, down to his ears, has the color of ripe walnuts, and from there, falling down on his back, is of a brilliant and golden color. It is divided on the on the middle of his head, like the Nazarite fashion. So he's saying here he's a Nazarite, um, seems to be place, you know, the long hair of Nazarite vow. And this, this really matches up with a lot of the artwork we see of Yahusha during this time period of what we, what we call the Middle Ages. His forehead is smooth and there are no wrinkles or spots on his face. The beard, which has the same color as the hair on his head, is curly and even though it is not long, is divided around the middle. Now, this is really important because this is exactly what we see in the Shroud of Turin and artwork. Now, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article saying that I felt that the Shroud of Turin was a hoax. But I'm telling you guys that the mud flood has changed so much of my thinking that I'm willing to reevaluate that now. Go, maybe, maybe there's something legitimate about it. You know, they say the shroud is only about what it appeared in like like 1200 AD or something like that. But you know, I don't know, fascinating. Where was I? Um, oh yeah, his divided beard, and we see all that through artwork. He had like a like a goatee or beard that was like cut right down the middle. His serious eyes possess the virtue of a solar ray. No one can look at him steadily at the eyes. When he speaks ad, um, admonishing, he inspires a apprehension. But as soon as he is through reprimanding, he looks like he is crying. Even though he is solemn, he is very affable and amiable. It is said no one has ever seen him laughing. I think that's really, really interesting here, too. Uh, the man of sorrows, like no one, he, he never laughs. He's not, you know, he doesn't have crude talk. He doesn't joke. He's, the guy is serious. But that he has been seen crying. Everyone finds his conversation affable and pleasant. Very few times he appears in public. That seems to match up really well with the person we see in scripture. He's always going off by himself. And when he does, he is always very modest. He looks very noble. As for the rest, his mother is the most beautiful woman ever seen in these regions. Now, that, that, I'll plant a red flag on that one right there. O Kaiser, if you wish to see him like you requested once in writing, let me know and I will send him over right away. He never undertook studies. That's fascinating because we, we've seen that all through the Gospel of Yaakov, the Infancy Gospel of Matthew, that, that the scribes and the, the, the elders were getting so frustrated because they wanted to bring him into their schools to teach him their methods of understanding scripture, and he they were never able to, and he would school them. So he never undertook studies. That matches up with what we've seen. Nevertheless, he knows all sciences. Now, by science here, I think he's you know, he's thinking in kind of a, like a wizardly fashion, right? This guy is able to, you know, heal the sick and raise the dead. So he's, you know, he knows all these sciences that nobody else can. He goes around barefoot. I find this really fascinating because if you guys know me, I go barefoot at all times. I, I, I don't like, I used to wear shoes. I don't wear shoes very often. 
And uh, I kind of think if, if this is true, Yahushua and I would get along really well. And it's also one of those really strange things to put in there in like a medieval forgery that, you know, he goes around barefoot. Just one of those little flourishes in here I really like. And with his head uncovered. When he is seen at a distance, many laugh, but no sooner they approach him, they tremble and admire him. It is said that never in these lands has anyone ever seen a man like him. The Hebrews assure they have never heard an indoctrination such as his. Many say he is day or die. I can never pronounce that right, guys. I'm sorry. Others say his others say he is Kaiser's enemy. The bad Hebrews bother me a lot. But of um, Jesus, it is said, he has never displeased anyone. Rather, his intentions are to please everyone. At any rate, O Kaiser, I will execute any order I receive from you about him. In Yerushalayim, in, in Dyke 7 of the 11 months. And then it ends with Pub, uh, Publius um, Lentutius. And that's what I wanted to cover before going over my main article tonight. So. If anyone has any thoughts on anything we covered with the Hawaiian article on the uh, the Japanese AE map, or the reflections of the moon, uh, the Grand Canyon, and negative electric discharging scarring, or this letter, I know this was a lot to go over, but um, yeah, I had a lot I wanted to cover tonight. Did anyone have any thoughts? Great observations. Yeah. Once again, great points you made related to the information how like um certain things might be set up in that way uh, things are planted to be disproved or mocked and those um, insights were excellent and that map once again hit it's funny that hey it might not be this it might not be that you we wouldn't know if there was no ice wall in many ways and that there could be keep going and there's islands, but we wouldn't know. So there might be an ice wall at some point, but you only can see those points. So again, we, we think of um, grand exploration that took place that we know everywhere, but I think that's part of the deception once again also. Well, one of, one of my points to what you're saying, Michael, is that I know people were talking about in regards to the flat earth, you know, the ice wall. I said, well, has anyone ever like followed it completely around the 25,000 plus miles exactly. and, and videotaped it? And I don't think so. So, so that's one of my biggest arguments or not arguments, but just points that, you know, do we really know that? So keep that in mind. And then second, I wanted to discuss the, um, the electrical uh, uh, evidence that you see in lightning, how it showed on the people's skin. I thought that was a great uh, uh, photo to give you an understanding of a, a massive uh, uh, electrical uh, damage even upon the face of the earth and you see that in the pictures that you've shown with the Grand Canyon or or even the quote rivers you know these were probably created uh, and the waters filled up these to flow down through them or or however but either way there's a strong evidence of this massive electrical damage upon the face of the earth 
So I, I thought those were really interesting points that you brought out that shows that, uh, you know, that could have been tied in with the uh, judgments upon the earth. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to, to add that we are made from earth and we literally have the same composition as earth, like the same ratio of water to um, other materials and the minerals and everything. So um, it makes sense to me that um, the... So, so with me, when I, I saw the Grand Canyon, I thought, let me look for pictures to see what happens to the human body when there is an electric uh, um, carring. And, and then when I saw those pictures, it was a done deal. Like, it makes sense because... Our body is a reflection of Earth. It has the same ratios of of, of um, components. So I think it's it's amazing to look at those pictures. And I mean, Noel, you you just uh, brought so many beautiful pictures from all over the world. And it's I think in the future it would be also nice to uh, investigate the fractal angle of creation i think we can find a lot of uh, um, of interesting knowledge also from that perspective um i just wanted to say about the letter that you read it sounded so authentic i i mean it didn't feel like a forgery to me um listening to it at all and i was wondering why you reacted when he said about his mother being beautiful. All right, this is a post-edit comment, or rather insertion. I very rarely put these in. My readings of scripture have informed me that the mother of Yahusha, Miriam, followed him around everywhere. She was, she took care of him, and he took care of her. She would have been at his side almost wherever he went. Now, if you were a Roman official, and you were writing a letter to kaiser or to the roman senate talking about an individual who was the son of an elohim very likely the first place you would turn to look is to his mother you'd be like if that's the son of a god i want to see his mother you're not thinking in terms of virgin birth you're thinking in terms of an elohim who lusted after a woman came down and had relations with her very much like the watchers what i'm saying is a virgin birth may not have been on the writer's mind. He wanted to see the mother, and his conclusion was, she's beautiful. The only thing that I wanted to add was pretty much what Mike is uh, talking about in the chat there, about the, the lungs in our body, blood vessels, veins, and arteries. Uh, they all have this fractal design that um, these people struck by lightning uh have had this electrical pattern on the earth and also the other thing is uh trees you know the way that trees form um have this pattern as well so yeah and that, that's a, a interesting point and i i would like to counter you know i'm not going to do that tonight but counter what we saw with those photographs and look at like, you know, fruits and other designs that are very 
symmetrical and beautiful. You know, look at snowflakes, other things like that. And it, there's there's clearly symmetrical things all over. But the the thing is about the Earth itself. Like when you're, it, it's remember now, it's not just the rivers, right? It's the mountains, it's the valleys, it's all these things that are forming these these um, ridges and these these vein lines and all that kind of stuff. It's just I don't know. It's really interesting. Somebody was another YouTuber was commenting to me, kind of almost scoffing about how I, I showed him some some pictures of what I felt was the day of the Lord the day of Yahuwah of like these melted cities is like, he's like, that's all you got like a couple pictures. And I'm just thinking like, like, dude, like the whole earth looks like it was destroyed in some huge cataclysmic event. That was not the flood. That was like fire. But I, I was just looking at those photos tonight. Um, or when I was preparing it for this presentation, I was getting a little overwhelmed with what I was seeing there. Well, I want to move on tonight because now I'm going to get to my main presentation. I can't believe we've already been at this for over an hour. I apologize if I'm going to keep some of you a little bit later tonight. But we are going over the a very controversial subject matter. And it doesn't matter how long I've been in this. Uh, I, I still get very nervous giving these presentations. Um, I gave you all warning before you came here tonight that we will be talking about the A word. Ashkenazi. And, you know, the way the media would paint me or anybody else is that I'm the kind of guy that's going to go out there and spray paint some swastikas on a synagogue or deface a cemetery, which I hope you all know that is not my personality. Um, I was passing around some, I asked a few people like how they felt I should approach this, give a warning in advance. And the advice I was given by every individual was not to, um, generalize you know not to you know to kind of be like well you know yeah there's the ashkenazi but we're not talking about everyone well the thing is though is that is you, you guys know that i really don't like giving politically correct answers i really don't i don't like the backpedal to try to please people i just like to lay it out there as i see it or as scripture tells me and the thing is is that uh, scripture doesn't scripture generalizes like we're going to be talking about the Gog Magog invasion tonight. It says the you know the people from Gog Magog. It doesn't say like well you know sixty percent of the people from Gog Magog were really good people and they you know it's it's like no like they were drug out and they came to this attack, right? We're going to be going over passages about the Edomites tonight. It doesn't say like well you know like ninety percent of the Edomites were you know good scholarly church going people and it's just that 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 rotten you know, 3%, they, you know, it's just like, no, the, Edom, right? Esau, like children of Esau. It's just, it's very generic. And so uh, I just want to throw that warning out there that I am just presenting things that I find in scripture and extra and also ancient books. And I'm putting this together. So, um, and, you know, the Bible is a wildly controversial book. And a conspiracy theorist dream. I put in the, uh, I dropped in there in 1948, the year Gog invaded Israel. So hopefully everyone has opened it up. You can see on the title page there, it actually says 1948, the year Edom, and I crossed that out, 
and put God Conquered Israel by Noel Joshua Hadley. I first published this on June 18th, 2021, and the second publication is today, February 3rd, 2022. I will also point out um, a couple things before I get started here. Uh, there is this topic is so huge that I, I am shocked at how much scripture has to say on the subject, and I barely tapped into it. This is uh, almost 50 pages. I barely, barely tapped into it. Secondly, uh, I'm going to sound a little bipolar tonight because we're talking about the Gog Magog invasion. And from a millennial kingdom perspective, I believe it has already happened. I believe it happened when the kingdom was ushered in. However, I also believe that it's a twofold event. We see it in Revelation 20 with the camp of Yah and the, and the beloved city when Gog Magog, when the nations surround it. I've quoted from that verse so often. So we're looking at two-time event. Now, the other side will say, well, that's proof that it's, you know, just a one, it, it's all the same event. No, it's two separate events. And I've shown that. Uh, the, the problem is, is that I have yet to do a study on Gog Magog on the day of Yahuwah when the kingdom is ushered in. I haven't done that yet. So this paper that I'm about to read you has a lot of facts in it, but I may have to, you know, as, as I'm investigating this, putting puzzle pieces together, it may form a different picture as time goes on. Anyways, let's get to it. Introduction. You figure I'm on Mossad's naughty list by now. It only makes sense that I would be. The one time I've ever been interrogated anywhere just so happens to be the back of a room in Tel Aviv. What are the odds that people representing the star of Ripfan Wanted to know why I crossed the border into Egypt and back again into Israel on the very day when a bomb apparently exploded someplace somewhere, but also who I managed to talk to along the way. So there I was, fixing my hair in a mirror, explaining in detail how I regularly converse with myself as an answer to whom I spoke with is liable to get one slap silly. But anyone who regularly reads my work knows that to be about as honest an answer as any I can give. And really, if I was supposed to be given the good cop, bad cop routine, then they either cheated me royally or I have no desire to find out what a bad cop can amount to. Seriously, guys, I have no illusions about making it out of here alive. Remember that scene in Glory where the guy with the flag gets shot and then somebody else rushes over to pick up the flag and he gets shot? All I can do is hold up the home team guiding flag as a representative as a representative of the rebellion against the empire until somebody points a laser to my skull and pulls the trigger. Since we're into confessions right now, the only time I've ever had lasers pressed against my chest was in Israel. Just saying, it took me a moment to spot the masked dudes in a helicopter. That's a true story. Before we get too far into this, you probably notice how I crossed out Edom in the title of a paper, which was originally published a year ago, replacing it with Gog. And now you have questions. Why the switcheroo? I've scratched Edom's involvement in the 1948 creation of Israel, but only after coming to learn that it's a partial truth. The people who call themselves Jews are in fact Edomites, but that's not nearly the whole of it, as they are also the people of Magog. Stumbling upon that little tidbit was a complete accident on my part. I nearly fell out of my chair when it happened, and as you can hopefully imagine, the implications are huge. The Gog from the Gog invasion has already begun, but even that is a smidgen of the larger picture. 
Don't even get me started on whether the state of Israel is the historical land of Yahshua or not. I have many reasons to doubt its claimed location, but that matters little either way, and I'll tell you why. Wherever Yasharel's boundaries truly are, the first Gog-Magog war already went down when Yahushua HaMashiach arrived with his posse to set up a kingdom upon the earth. I've even laid out a timeline as to when I suspect that happened. According to Enoch and other sources, an estimated 500 years of apostasy is given after Messiah's resurrection, which just so happens to line up with the collapse of Rome and the ushering in of the Dark Ages. That's when the first war happened. Not the Revelation 20 war, mind you. Hasatan has yet to advance upon the camp of Yah. But when that happens, the same people as before, Gog Magog, will lead the charge. Mm -hmm, I just went there and offer no apologies. The coming attack upon Mount Zion will be for the health and continued existence of Zionism. Rest assured that the state of Israel is a hoax, practically speaking. By that I mean to imply that the prophetic regathering of both houses, Yasharel and Yehuda, is not represented by the United Nations. Ridiculous. Therefore, as the second exodus is concerned, whatever is going on over there in the land they call Israel is not the doing of Yahuwah, the Most High and set-apart Elohim of Yasharel. Contrarily, the regathering already happened when Yahushua set up his kingdom. But even if it didn't, and even if the same regathering will be repeated, 1948 still isn't it. And perhaps more importantly, those aren't his people, mostly. I don't necessarily know who the Yahudim are in the world today, and Semitics may be counted among the ranks. See, I'm not trying to generalize. But the Ashkenazi are not it. No, the regathered people are Edomites as a rule, which I will demonstrate in this paper. Or should I say, Gogites. How about Magogians? I'm still working on a title. They're not, they're not the sons of Shem, but Yapeth. You will tell, well, of course, the Edomites are, but you get my point. You will tell me 1948 can't possibly be the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel if the land itself is a hoax. Exactly. If anything, calling the plot of land a hoax makes way more sense, seeing as how Yahuwah has let their transgression slide. He hasn't done anything about it, guys. Perhaps Hasatan had little choice but to create fabricated boundary markers, or else the location of Yah's camp might become known, thereby risking his house of cards. Even the regathering is just another layer of the fabrication. They're all lies. But again, don't get me started. What I'm saying is, the same people who invaded Yashorel the first time around are sponsoring the present deception. Whether the geography they've planted their flag upon is legitimate or not, none of that ultimately matters when we come to terms with Zionism's ultimate destination, the Camp of Yah, otherwise known as the Second Gog-Magog War. Orwellian society never ceases to disappoint. Part 1, the Edom Connection. So we are on page 6 if you're just now trying to catch up. Their battle had begun in the womb. Yaakov and Esau. You will recall how the twins were the sons of Yitzhak and the grandsons of Abraham, and that Yaakov was later renamed Yasharel, being the father of the twelve patriarchs. Esau was in line to receive the blessing, but it didn't work out that way, probably because on the very day in which he killed Nimrod in the woods, Esau cashed in his eternal inheritance for a bowl of soup 
also a piece of bread. Not that he ever believed it anyways. The Genesis Targum tells us that he had already despised his birthright on the basis that he denied the world to come. And that's so important in understanding this too. On the day that Abraham died, Yaakov dressed pottage of lentils and was going to comfort his father. And Esau came from the wilderness exhausted, for in that day he had committed five transgressions. He had worshipped with strange worship. He had shed innocent blood. He had gone in unto a betrothed damsel. He had denied the life of the world to come and had despised the birthright. So there it is. And Esau said to Yaakov, Let me now taste that red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore he called his name Edom. And Yaakov said, Till today, as on this very day, what thou wouldst hereafter appropriate, thy birthright unto me. And Esau said, Behold, I am going to die, and in another world I shall have no life. And what then to me is the birthright, or the portion in the world of which thou speakest? And Yaakov said, Okay, I'm going to have to... All right, meeting someone else. All right. And Yaakov gave to Esau bread and pottage for lentils, and he ate and drank and rose and went. And Esau scorned the birthright and the portion of the world that cometh. Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 34 in the Aramaic Targum. There's certainly more to the complexity of his character, but that's really where Edom's story begins. Esau was read all over, but also the pottage was read, and Yaakov made a spiritual self-serving connection between the two, thereby calling him Edom, which means the same thing, read all over. Esau was filling his stomach for the world he inhabited and no other. At his dying day, he would resent that decision without ever once seeking repentance. And in the millennia since, his descendants have never forgotten. Perhaps that is why the book of Yasher has Esau retrieving the garment from Nimrod, which Ham had earlier stolen from Noah, the very skin shed by the serpent in the garden by which Adam and Hava had been dressed in. Esau had an earthly empire on his mind, and so a bowl of soup would do. Something akin to Babylon, perhaps. We're living in it. All right, so this comes from Yasher, Jasher, chapter 27, verse 10. And when Esau saw the mighty men of Nimrod coming at a distance, he fled and thereby escaped. And Esau took the valuable garments to Nimrod, which Nimrod's father had uh, bequeathed to Nimrod, and with which Nimrod prevailed over the whole land, and he ran and concealed them in his house. What's particularly interesting about the exchange between Yaakov and Esau is that it mirrors the very conversation which brought about Havel's death at the hand of Cain. All right, so going back to the Genesis Targum, chapter 4, verse 8, this is a conversation between um, uh, Cain and Abel, which we read above in um, between Esau and um, Yaakov. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, come and let us two go forth into the field. And it was that when they two had gone forth into the field, Cain answered and said to Abel, I perceive that the world is created in goodness, but it is not governed or conducted according to the fruit of good works, for there is respect to persons in judgment. Therefore, it is that thy offering was accepted, and mine not accepted with good will. Abel answered and said to Cain, In goodness was the world created, and according to the fruit of good works is it governed, and there is no respect of persons in judgment. But because the fruits of my works were better than thine, my oblation before thine hath been accepted with good will. When is that 
ever gone well, well <laughs> uh, with brothers. I could just imagine my two sons arguing this out. Cain answered and said to Abel, There is neither judgment nor judge, nor another world, nor will good reward be given to the righteous, nor revenge be taken of the wicked. And Abel answered and said to Cain, There is a judgment, and there is a judge, and there is another world, and a good reward given to the righteous, and vengeance taken of the world. And because of these words, they had contention upon the face of the field. And Cain arose against Abel his brother, and drave a stone into his forehead, and killed him. The defining difference between the two accounts is that Cain killed Abel to aid Hasatan in discontinuing the messianic seed. Whereas Esau plotted murder, but only after their father was dead. Still worked for the same master, though, for reasons which Genesis and Jasher further expand upon, but need it be detailed here. Esau never got around to finishing the deed. Unlike Abel, Yitzhak continued the promised lineage of Abraham through the bringing forth of the twelve patriarchs, and so on, and so on, and so on. And anyways, another clear connection between the two set of brothers is that Yaakov thought like a Sethite, whereas Esau only had the cities of Cain on his mind. Abraham had been educated in the house of Shem. Afterwards, Yitzhak received this, his education there as well, whereas Ishmael refused to have a part in it. And something I just thought about, which isn't in this paper, we have talked about this in the past weeks, how Shem and Nimrod actually kind of counterbalance each other, and where Shem had his school on Mount Zion, and Nimrod had his tower that he was trying to replicate what Shem had with his school. And Nimrod could have very well gone to Shem and gone to his school and gone up to paradise, you know, if he had become a student, and he didn't. And it's the same thing we see with Esau. It's interesting that Esau replaces Nimrod by killing him. I, I just thought of that. It's really fascinating. Afterwards, Yitchak received his education there, whereas Ishmael refused to have a part in it. The same can be said of Yaakov and Esau. Uh, we read, at that time, Yitchak sent his younger son Yaakov to the house of Shem and Eber, and he learned the instructions of Yahuwah. And Yaakov remained in the house of Shem and Eber for 32 years, and Esau, his brother, did not go. For he was not willing to go. Why did I not highlight that? That's the good part. And he remained in his father's house in the land of Canaan. Jasher 28.18 If you read my paper on the altar of Yahuwah, which I was just uh, describing, then you'll know by now that the house of Shem was located on Mount Zion. And just as importantly, that Mount Zion acted as a sort of... <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I did write about this this week. I thought I just thought about it, but I thought about it uh, last week. Uh, Mount Zion acted as a sort of portal leading towards paradise. Shem, of course, was a Meshelzedek. By the time that Yaakov entered Shem's school, it was probably located in paradise rather than Zion, which tells us what Esau was purposely snubbing. So keep in mind, Esau doesn't believe in the world to come. And his brother's like, dude, like, I've been there, man. It, it exists. Why didn't you go to school with me? What I failed to mention in that paper is an obvious contrast between Meshelzedek and Nimrod. Uh, Meshelzedek would be Shem. Rather than simply visiting paradise by way of the doorway in Shem school, Nimrod attempted to build a portal to heaven by way of lawlessness. That's the story of humanity right there, but also of Edom and his descendants. Probably everybody knows the story concerning Yaakov tricking his father Yitzhak into handing him the blessing intended for Esau. Um, and I'm kind of generalizing that he doesn't really trick him. Actually, his mom has a part to play in it, but 
And some people theorize that Yitzhak was going along with it. But anyways, the story comes to us by way of Genesis 27. Technically, it was Rivka who advised her son on how to go about doing it. And even that came through the intervention of the Ruach HaKodesh. After a demide Yitzhak learned that the venison he ate was delivered from Yaakov and not Esau, whom the blessing had been intended for, he then offered the following prophecy for Esau. And Yitzhak his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you shall have the dominion, that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. And Esau hated Yaakov because of the blessing, wherewith which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning my father are at hand, then I will slay my brother Yaakov. That comes from Genesis 27, 39-41. The Genesis Targum phrases it quite differently. Rather than bringing his father Yitzhak clean venison, the word of Yahuwah had impeded him so that Esau only managed to kill an unclean dog for food. He cut it up and offered it anyways. To Yitzhak, the meat, the meat placed before him smelled of Gehenna. Uh, so I'll, I'll read this really quickly. I think it's worth reading. And Yitzhak answered and said to Esau, Behold, among the good fruits of the earth shall be thy habitation, and with the dews of the heavens from above. And upon thy sword shalt thou depend, entering at every place. Yet thou shalt be supple and credulous, and be in subjection to thy brother. But it will be that when his sons become evil and fall from keeping the commandments of the law, thou shalt break his yoke of servitude from off thy neck. And Esau kept hatred in his heart against Yaakov, his brother, on account of the order of blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, I will not do as Cain did, who slew Abel in the lifetime of his father, for which his father begat Seth. But we'll wait till the time when the days of mourning for the death of my father come, and then will I kill Yaakov, my brother, and will be found the killer and the heir. Now, I, I don't, I'm always jumping ahead of myself, but I don't think I commented here that it's really interesting that he makes the connections. He says that the mistake Cain made was that he killed Abel while Adam and Hava were still alive. Had he waited until afterwards, he may have been able to kill off the, the line. But he's, he's thinking here that if he kills off his brother Yaakov now, that his, bro his father, Yitzhak, can technically still have another heir to replace him. And see, he says that he wants to be the killer and the heir. So that's why he's going to wait. Only after the sons of Yaakov became evil will Esau break the yoke of servitude from his neck. How might Yaakov's descendants become evil? The same passage tells us. They do away with the law of Yahuwah and claim it is no longer applicable to their lives. Sound familiar? It should. Christians proclaim the point from the pulpit, like Hitler at a Nuremberg rally. As a result, the sons of Yaakov were tossed from the land, making it possible for the sons of Esau to move in like squatters. The hatred which Esau harbored against Yitzhak continued until the end of their days. Not surprising, and even still, the animosity does not cease. Several chapters later, we learn that Esau's descendants were a people referred to as the Edomites in Genesis 36-43. Also, Magdiel and Iram were their chiefs. Some centuries down the road, the fires of hatred remained hot on the front burner as the Edomites did not allow Moshe and the children of Yashiro passage through their land during the exodus from Egypt. 
Numbers 20:21. When Edom confronted them with their army, Yahuwah instructed Moshe that they stand down from battle as Edom's judgment had not yet arrived. So this comes from Numbers 20 in the Targum. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out to meet him, or Edom, Edom, Edomia came out to meet him with a large army and with a strong hand. So Edomia would not suffer Yasharol to pass through his coast. And Yasharol turned away from him because it was commanded from before the word of the heavens that they should not set battle and array against them. For as much as the time was not yet come, when the punishment of Edom should be given into their hands. Before you tell me that Edom was destroyed, and that even their capital city of Petra, if we actually want to go with that narrative, remains an uninhabited wilderness, thereby fulfilling this prophecy, I will direct you to the big swap. We haven't gotten there quite yet. We will, though. Historians tell us that the country of Edom flourished between the 13th and 8th century BC and was destroyed after a period of decline in the 6th century BC by the Babylonians. But that's not the whole of it. The Edomites couldn't possibly have vanished into non-existence, at least not officially, as scripture tells us their ultimate purpose. Edom would be the cause of the Most High's wrath during the day of Yahuwah. Part 2. So we are on page 13. If anybody needs caught up, I need a drink of uh, coffee real quick. Part 2, the Rome Connection. Some will argue that identifying Edom as the ancient ancestors of Rome only complicates matters, especially since Roman mythology states that the founding of their capital city can be traced back to the twins, Romulus and Remus. But I don't see it that way. The story takes on a recognizable tone when we learn that Romulus, like Cain and Abel before him, became the first king of Rome after murdering his twin. Isn't that amazing how it works in mythology? Well, even the Roman twins can be traced back to Edom. Okay, I hear somebody. I need to turn off somebody's mic here. Let's see. Scrolling, scrolling. Okay, here we go. Esther Rabba makes the following claim. So just so you guys know in this section, I'm going to get into some um, kind of some rabbinical text. Two orphans were left to Esau, namely Remus and Romulus. And you, Elohim, gave permission to a she-wolf to suckle them. And afterwards they arose and built Rome. Esther Rabbah 3.5 Fun fact, the origin of Valentine's Day may in fact find its descendancy from the Roman festival uh, Lupercalia. But even before that, Lupercalia derives from an even older archaic festival, the Lycaea, I'll probably pronounce that wrong, but with its secretive mystery rites, was once held on the slopes of Mount Lycaon, <laughs> the tallest peak in Acadia, and which literally means Wolf Mountain. Follow along. In Greek mythology, Acadia was the home of Pan. According to the travels at Noah into Europe, Pan is none other than Ham, the son of Noah, and sole heir to the otherwise doomed lineage of Cain. I've already gone over those details, though, in my paper, Wastelands of the Seraphim, which was part of my Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood series. So, no need to open old wounds here. And as we have already seen, Esau did not attend Shem school as Yitchek had, but was Ham still alive? Either way, Ham Pan was the superintendent of his own statewide sponsored schools, which carried on the mysteries of the Watchers. 
And even by the birth of Abraham, we had already taken, um, he had already taken control of the world and set up bastardly kings on the very thrones where the sons of Shem and Japheth were expected to rule. And we see that in uh, the travels of Noah to Europe. It's a fascinating read how Ham is going around and just overturning thrones and putting his own uh, children on it. Really fascinating. The statue of Pan, depicted as nude, save for a goatskin girdle, once stood in the uh, Lupercal, the cave where tradition held that Romulus and Remus were suckled by the she-wolf Lupa. Here's some of what we know about Lupercalia, the, the prototype of Valentine's Day. The annual holiday, which transpired every year on February 15th, started with a sacrifice. Luperci uh, or Luperci priests would disrobe themselves before slaughtering goats in the Lupercal. They would then cut the goat's skin into strips and run around the Palatine hell in Rome, assaulting women, presumably while naked. Apparently, this was their way of telling the pretty girls, won't you be my Lupercalia? Back to the Rome connection. It is partly for this reason that Yahuwah instructed Moshe not to go on the attack with Mount Seir. They were intended to enslave Yasharel in a later generation. I say partly, and that is because the children of Edom were anticipated for more than Roman enslavement. Calling them Roman may be true, certainly Herodians, but it is only using our peripheral vision. We shall address that additional detail hereafter. This comes from Deuteronomy Rabbah 116. I know you can defeat Edom, but I wish to subdue my world through them, i.e. through Rome. I need Rome for future generations until the final redemption. Moshe, your teacher, already wished to engage the Edomites in battle, but I said no to him. Notice how Rome was being used for the final redemption. Hard not to. You likely already knew that fact, but take a mental note of it anyways. And, um, and, just, and just for all of you guys, like maybe doubting this narrative, like I'm going to get to it at the end where it, it straight out says that uh, in um, Second Ezra, that Edom is intended for the final redemption. Um, so we're seeing here that you know Rome has a part of it, Edom has a part of it. You know, kind of interesting. The world is ruled from the Vatican today, telling us that the Edomites are still in control. Another claim found in the Genesis Rabbah takes the Rome connection a step further, and rather than simply pitting Esau against Yaakov in the womb, compares the two patriarchs with Emperor Hadrian and King Solomon. This comes from Genesis Rabbah 63.7. Two nations, Goyim, are in your womb. Two proud Goyim nations are in your womb. This one is proud of his world, and that one is proud of his world. This one is proud of his kingdom, and that one is proud of his kingdom. Two prides of the nations are in your womb, Hadrian amongst the Gentiles and Solomon amongst the Israelites. So they're comparing uh, Esau to Hadrian. Self-explanatory, wouldn't you say? That leads us to our next breadcrumb which is somewhat of an oddity, and right up my alley as it falls in agreement that Emperor Hadrian was an Edomite, but then spins the entire na narrative into a loop-de-loop. -loop. Uh, this comes from Midrash uh, Tan Tankuma. After Hadrian, I had to read a lot of books to get this stuff, guys. <laughs> After Hadrian, king of Edom, conquered the world, he returned to Rome and said to his officers, I want you to make me uh, an Elohim. Since I have, I should have just said, make me a, um, a day there. Since I have conquered the world. They said to him, 
But you have not yet established your rule over his Elohim city in his house. He went, succeeded, destroyed the temple, exiled the Asherel, and returned to Rome. He said to them, I have now destroyed his house and burned his temple and exiled his people. Make me a god. You will tell me you are a historian, and Hadrian, in fact, did not destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, he put an end to the Bar Kokhba revolt and then built the temple of Baal upon Fort Antonia. Notice how I didn't say he built anything upon the Temple Mount, and that is because we have already been through this already. The temple was built on Mount Zion, the real Mount Zion, and not Fort Antonia. The advertised Temple Mount in Jerusalem is clearly a Roman fort, and therefore a hoax. Will the real Mount Zion please stand up? I'm still looking for it. Secondly, we are told the Midrash was written soon after Emperor Hadrian. You would think the writer might understand the difference between the Flavian emperors and Hadrian. Also, that the temple had been destroyed 50 years before the reign of Hadrian. What we just read is simply more evidence to what I've already been saying, or rather speculating in my timeline research, that the war in 70 AD and the Bar Kokhba revolt are not two separate events, but one. All speculations, though. I'm just saying this is perhaps a little residue. I'm not sure. Let's not get sidetracked when the connection being made is Hadrian with the Edomites. Here's another connection. Chief Magdal, Rome, Chief Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom by their habitations in the land of their holding. This is Esau, the father of Edom. Genesis 36-43 from the Rashi uh, Chumash, or Kumash. Subtle, and yet, there it is again. Here we see Magdal, a chief among the Edomites, planting his bum on the throne of Romulus. So, now you can no longer say Romulus was an Edomite based merely upon a technicality of adoption. The sages really have the Kaisers descending from Esau this time around. Really, I could pull quote after quote from the Jewish sages, all claiming the same thing. Uh, I don't know, I have a little misprint there, add another. But there were, there were so many quotes, I could just go on and on and on, where they're equating Rome with Edom. That being said, you will likely tell me that the prophecies of Edom are merely dealing with Rome, and therefore my claims that the Jews of modern Israel are Edomites has no merit. Hold on, we haven't gotten there yet. They are most certainly Edomites. The big swap hasn't happened yet. Give it time. I'm simply attempting to cover this from all angles, and before this is over, I expect there to be very few loose ends. Um, actually, that's too bad because there's going to be a lot of loose ends at the end. I was maybe hoping there'd be less when I wrote this. Contrarily, I will also be accused of siding with the Jews in their attempt to frame the Romans, when in fact, these same Talmudic authors were accused by Yahushua HaMashiach as being sons of Hasatan in the Gospels and the congregation of Hasatan in Revelation. The last part is true. But otherwise, don't be ridiculous. I'm simply using their writings, just as I might Josephus. There are lies and deceit everywhere, but far more confessions and slip-ups than we often give allowance for. Here, I'll give you an example. So this actually comes from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Barakat 58a. And the triumph, that is the downfall of Rome. And so it says, describing the downfall of Rome, whom the sages identified as the forefather of Rome. Their lifeblood is dashed against my garments, and I have stained all my raiment. Isaiah 63.3. You see, there it is, the slip-up. The Jews are telling us that the divine plan of Edom is complete once Rome has fallen. That much is true. Rome did fall when, when the Millennial Kingdom was ushered in. I highly suspect the Gog Magog War transpired at that time. 
we learn about the war and its connection with Edom in the Aramaic Targum. Uh, this comes from the Lamentations Targum 4.22. And after this, your iniquity will be finished, O congregation of Zion, and you will be freed by the hands of the King, Messiah, and Eliyahu, the high priest, and Yahuwah will no longer exile you. And at that time, I will punish your iniquities, wicked Rome, built in Italy and filled with crowds of Edomites. Hmm. There's a nice connection. And the, and the Persians will come and oppress you and destroy you because your sins have been made known before Yahuwah. And I, ah, this is where I have so much more work to do on this, but right there, the Persians, guys, they're telling you about Gog Magog right there. It doesn't say Gog Magog, but the Persians, all right? They're the ones that came in and destroyed Rome. Even more evidence that the modern state of Israel is not Yasharel, as we have just read, that the congregation of Zion would never be exiled again. That is, after Rome was punished by the Persians. Believe it or not, we have just been given a Gog Magog connection. Okay, so I do. I'm always getting ahead of myself. You'll have to wait a little longer to find out how all the loose, uh, the loose ends tie in together. Perhaps now you are beginning to catch on to why Hasatan would not would need to create a fabricated land of promise. It's out of pure necessity. If we all knew where Zion was, then we'd be flocking in droves towards the camp of Yah, and our controllers can't have that. And as you can clearly see, Rome was populated by Edomites. So what the Babylonian Talmud was saying is true, according to the Targum. When Rome fell, Edom dead too. There is only one problem. The beast has returned. If the beast has risen like a phoenix out of the ashes of the flame, then it's safe to deduce by the same logic that it's sponsored by the same sort of people. And anyways, the saying is still true today. All roads lead to Rome, particularly when it comes to Zionism. That's all Zionism really is, a pet project of Rome. Or put in slightly different but already established terms, a pet project of Edom. The land advertised to us as Yasharel may be sponsored by the United Nations, but it's owned by Rome. We are only ever offered an illusion. And just to be clear, everybody, because all you know, conspiracy theorists have their theories, I believe Rome runs the world. I do not believe Zionism runs the world. I believe that they are owned by Rome. That Rome itself is the beast. All right, we are on page 18 if you need, or page 19 if you need to catch up. Part 3, the Zion Connection Even before Rome enacted its revenge upon the children of Yaakov, Edom made an open and rather contemptuous attempt at conquering Yashrael during the rule of Yahushaphat without success. The Edomites later teamed up with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Success. You can read about it in an attempt to fill in the pieces in 2 Chronicles chapters 35 through 36. I won't be going over all that. A confirmation of their involvement, however, is given in several passage, different passages, one of which is 1 Ezra. We read, You have vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Yehuda was made desolate uh, by the uh, Kazdim. First Ezra 4.45. The Kazdim are the same as the Chaldeans, which again is just another name for the Babylonians. History may record the people of Babel as responsible, but as you can clearly see, the prophets finger Edom as their conspirator. Remember that part. History likes to pull back curtains in places where, or I should say, his story likes to pull back curtains in places where our controllers would rather leave alone. Well, the same event is detailed in Psalm 137. Follow along. By the rivers of Babel, there we sat down, yea, we wept, 
as we were remembering Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Yahuwah's song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Yerushalayim, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Yerushalayim above my chief joy. Remember, O Yahuwah, the children of Edom in the day of Yerushalayim, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babel, who are to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. Psalm 137. There it is again. The Edomites are identified as the second shooter, the people responsible for wanting to destroy Yasharel's inheritance. A slightly altered telling comes to us by the way of the Aramaic Targum, and it features the angel Michael and Gabriel. It says, Said Michael, prince of Jerusalem, Remember, O Yahuwah, the people of Edom, who laid waste Jerusalem, who say, Destroy, destroy, to the foundations of it. Said Gabriel, prince of Zion, to the despoiling Babylonian mother, Happy he who gives back to you evil for what you did to us. Happy he who takes and smashes your children on a rock. I bring up their involvement in the Targum because the destruction of Edom is relayed to us from a heavenly perspective, judgment. The very notion that their seed would be destroyed once again directs our attention to the first Gog-Magog war. We have already read in the Odes of Solomon that the seed of Satan was destroyed, past tense, certainly swept from the kingdom, as all indicators point to a remnant survival in the wastelands of Babylon. Seeing a connection? I am. Let's keep pushing forward because Edom's removal from his story during the destruction of Rome wasn't their first disappearing trick. The same people slipped into the shadows after the first destruction of Jerusalem. I almost got the feeling that a deal was struck with the people of Babel. And anyways, in case you forgot him, King Herod was an Edomite. And how did something like that come about? He was only a Yahudim so much as he was also a Roman and an Arabian. But even before that, Josephus records that the Hasmo, um, Hasmonean high priest, John, uh, how do you pronounce that? High, Hercan, Hercanus, John Hercanus, conquered the um, Idumeans and forced them to convert to Judaism. He says so right here. Hercanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Idumia, and subdued all the Idumians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and of the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. That comes from Antiquities 13.9. I checked. I do mean is the Greek word for Edomite. Any questions? It is during the Maccabean revolt when the children of Esau began to blend in while the Yahudim were quietly bled out. As the, at the advent of Messiah, the Edomites had gone so far as to purchase the priesthood. How did Yahushua describe them again? Oh yes, here it is. You are the sons of Hasatan, your father. Therefore, you take pleasure in doing the will of your father. He was a murderer at the beginning and, I, and did not abide in truth, for there is no truth with him. 
For everything which he speaks is a lie. He speaks that which is not uh, nigh to him, for he is its father, and he is a liar. Hebrew Yochanan 844. No wonder why they offed Messiah. In modern terms, Yahushua was an anti-Semite. Let me repeat that. In modern terms, Yahushua was an anti-Semite on steroids. If we must use pharmacia terms, I'd much prefer red-pilled. You know what I mean. Yahushua was a dispenser of the truth, and there is hardly anyone alive today who can handle it. All right, so now we're looking at Ezekiel 35, 1-15. Our next passage derives from Ezekiel, or Yekezkel. I can never pronounce that. I'm trying. The words speak for themselves. Rather than simply adding a verse here or there to make my point, I have decided to go with entire chapters so that a proper context might be delivered. Still, if you're interested in just skimming ahead, I have highlighted my main observations and then given each one the red marker treatment, as you have likely already noticed by now. We're on page 23 if you need to catch up. Moreover, the word of Yahuwah came to me, saying, Son of Adam, set your face against Mount Sire and prophesy against it. And just so we're clear, Mount Sire is Edom. Thus says Adonai Yahuwah, Behold, O Mount Sire, I am against you, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you most desolate. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate, and you shall know that I am Yahuwah, because you have a perpetual hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Yasharel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity. In the time that their iniquity came to an end, therefore as I live, says Adonai Yahuwah, I will prepare you unto blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, even blood shall pursue you. Thus will I make Mount Sire most desolate, and cut off from from it him that passes out and him that returns, and I will fill his mountains with his slain men. In your hills and in your valleys and in all your rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make you perpetually desolations, and your city shall not return. Then you shall know that I am Yahuwah, because you have said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. There it is. Whereas Yahuwah was there, therefore as I live, says Ad- Adonai Yahuwah, I will even do according to your envy, which you have used out of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. And you shall know that I am Yahuwah, and that I have heard all your blasphemies, which you have spoken against the mountains of Yasharel, saying, They are laid desolate. They are given us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus says Adonai Yahuwah, when the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you did rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Yasharel, because it was desolate, so will I do unto you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Sire, and all Edom, even all of it, and they shall know that I am Yahuwah. What is really going on here? Verse 10 tells us, at the time when Yahuwah cast the houses of Yashrael and Yehuda out of the land, Edom conspired to take back the inheritance which Esau had forsaken. Yahuwah has a problem with that. Now we read from Obadiah chapter 1, verse 8 through 21. Now that Esau's plot has been established, the prophet Obadiah is even more telling. The following text derives from Obadiah chapter 1, verse 8 through 21, as I just explained. I will pause as usual only for comments. Starting in verse 8. 
Shall I not in that day, says Yahuwah, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau and your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Yaakov, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captives, captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Yerushalayim, even you were as one of them. But you shall not have looked on the day of your brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Yehuda in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Pause. The same scene is once again unfolding. Edom conspired to make Yerushalayim its own. Verse 12 presents us with the word distress. In Hebrew, it is pronounced, uh, I guess, Sarah. Um, take a note of that, as we shall stumble upon the word again in Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. Uh, Continuing. Verse 13. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of calamity. Yea, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of Yahuwah upon all the heathen, as you have done, it shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had not been. Pause. Again, ask yourself, where is Yahuwah's holy mountain? It's in Yasharel. Specifically, to, the period, uh, to this period of his story, it is in the southern kingdom of Yehuda. The children of Esau have taken over Jerusalem. When does official history record such an event? It doesn't. Read on. But on Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Yaakov shall possess their possessions, and the house of Yaakov shall be a fire, and the house of Yosef a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahuwah has spoken it. And they of the Negev shall possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the uh, Pelishtim, uh, I think the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of uh, Shamron. And ben Benjamin shall possess Gilad. And the captivity of this host of the children of Yashorel shall possess that of the uh, Canaanim, even unto uh, Seraphath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in uh, uh, Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Then Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahuwah's. You will tell me that the house of Yaakov does possess their possessions, and that it happened in 1948 in a state called Israel, thanks in part to the, to the United Nations. If so, then you should listen to yourself talk. Ridiculous. Particularly since the purported land was already desolate when the Zionists began to arrive. They moved right on in. Does that look like the kingdom of Yahuwah to you? Not even close. And when did the house of Esau become stubble, according to our controller's timeline? It doesn't. Even if the above passage hasn't already been fulfilled in the first Gog Magog War, as I'm proposing, then it soon shall be. Both scenarios work. In either case, the present nation of Israel is becoming stubble. There's no way around it. 
Jeremiah 34 through 14. I ask you to make a mental note of Yaakov's distress. That will come to some use in uh, Yermiyahu 30. Once again, I will pause for comments. Verse 4. And these are the words that Yahuwah spoke concerning El Yasharel and concerning El Yehuda. For thus says Yahuwah, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of shalom. Ask now and see whether a man travails with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Yaakov's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. There it is again, distress. Sarah, or Sarah, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Only here we see that it is referring to the times of Yaakov's trouble. If you recall, Yaakov was a slave to his father-in-law, Laban, for the matter of 20 years and living out of the land. Upon his return plight, uh, who was there to comfort him, or confront him, I should say, but Esau, continuing, For it shall come to pass in that day, says Yahuwah Sabaoth, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Who is Yahuwah speaking of? It's a reference to the prophecy given in Genesis 27. Only the context here is that both houses of Yashar and Yehuda have already been cast out of the land and scattered over the breadth of the earth. This is the day when Yaakov's yoke will be broken from their neck after the dispersion. All right, continuing, verse 9. But they shall serve Yahuwah Elohim and David their king, whom I will raise unto them. Therefore fear you not, O my servant Yaakov, says Yahuwah. Neither be dismayed, O Yasharel, for lo, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity, and Yaakov shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says Yahuwah, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered you. Yet will I not make a full end of you. But I will correct you in measure, and will not leave you altogether unpunished. For thus says Yahuwah, your bruise in, is uh, incurable, and your, and your wound is grievous. There is none to plead your cause, that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They seek you not. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins were increased. Yermiyahu 34 through 14. If Yasharel was regathered in 1948, then the part where all the nations would come to an end was somehow overlooked by the United States and the UN. Bummer. By the way, the phrase, I will save you from afar, is a reference to Deuteronomy 4. A later day promise that Yahuwah would raise up Yehuda and Yasharel, the house of Yaakov, from the furthest corners of the earth. We read, And Yahuwah shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen. Whither Yahuwah shall lead you, and there ye shall serve Elohim, the work, uh, I should say other Elohim, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, whether neither, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence you shall seek Yahuwah Elohika, you shall find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, if you turn to Yahuwah Elohika and shall be obedient unto his voice, for Yahuwah thy Elohim is a merciful El. He will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore unto them. 
In the days leading up to the second exodus, Deuteronomy 4 is the picture given to us. Though the children of Yahshua would be scattered among the nations, they would be, begin to wake up to the truth of Yahuwah Elahika, but not until the later days. Rather awkward for anyone who claims Torah was done away with, seeing as how this is pitted as an event beyond Yahusha Messiah. Remember the lost sheep of the house of Yasharel that he came for? It says right here that Yahuwah would not forget the covenant he made with Yasharel's fathers. Also, their salvation is conditional. Yahuwah promises to be merciful, but only those who are obedient to his voice and forsake the ways of the heathen will, will be brought into the land. Awkward. Past, present, and future tense, the kingdom of Messiah was and is a lawful one. Stuff like this excites me. The only downside is having to deal with the number of people who have a hissy fit because they prefer living in sin and thinking the Most High is okay with it. Isaiah 34, 1-8 We st- we still have a couple of more passages to get through. Once again, they speak for themselves. Yeshayahu 34 is so straightforward that no comment is needed. Uh, so, starting with verse 1 of 34. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of Yahuwah is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses. Well, that's that's pretty intense. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. That's, wow, that's even more intense. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the tree. For my word shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of Yahuwah is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For Yahuwah has a sacrifice in Batra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of Yahuwah's vengeance, and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. By now you should know that I suspect this event already occurred. The day of Yahuwah is one pitted upon Edom. But even if it hasn't, then look out, because that can only mean one thing. The controversy is over Zion. And those people inhabiting the land are not his people. Amos 9, 11-15 Fancy technology will not restore Yashorel. Famous Amos taught me that. To put this in slightly different terms, modern technology may restore the states of Israel, but let's not get our wires crossed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, but only in the kingdom of Messiah. Before that can happen, though, look who is standing in the way. Edom. It says so right here in Amos 9. Are you shocked? I'm not. Let's read it anyways. In that day will I raise up the, uh, the kuka of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, says Yahuwah that does this. Behold, the days come, says Yahuwah, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sows seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. 
And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Yasharel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of the land which I have given them, says Yahuwah Elohika. Everything we know about the modern state of Israel is manufactured to fit a certain end times narrative. Hint, it begins with a Z. It's like they're using the Bible for a blueprint, but inverting everything. Hasatan can only mimic so much, though. Asking the mountains to drip with wine is apparently too big of a favor for him to ask. I gather he and the earth aren't on the best of terms. Nowhere do we read that Yehuda will return and then wrestle with Esau for the following century as we presently observe in the newspapers. You see the illusion. Rather, when Yahusha arrives with his kingdom, assuming it hasn't happened already, the picture that is given to us is that it will not fare thee well for those currently living in the land. Those grapes need pressed on the mountainside. Best not to be standing there when it happens. All right, we are on page 32. We are getting close to finishing this thing. Thank you, everyone, for hanging in there. It's getting late, I know. I try to pile in too much information, too much content tonight, I think. Part 4, the Gog-Magog Connection. Discovering the Gog-Magog Connection to 1948 Israel came totally by accident. Afterwards, I sat on the information for days, wondering if anybody else had arrived at the same conclusions. The search started out innocently enough. I figured the first Gog-Magog war had to have already occurred at the advent of Messiah's kingdom. Though it is true I haven't set out to demonstrate that fact yet, or rather my investigative hunch, that we are indeed looking at two separate events, what I wanted to know more about is the reference in Revelation 20, which reads, But after a thousand years, Hasatan will be delivered from his captivity. Then he will go to deceive the nations on the four ends of the earth, and Gog and Magog, to gather his armies to come to war, and their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they trampled over the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the armies of the set-apart ones, and the beloved city. Then fire fell from the heavens and burned them up. Satan's release from prison in the short season by which he goes about to save the four ends of the earth probably needs no introduction here. I mean, it is the marker on the timetable which we currently find ourselves inhabiting, and likely the only reason you've read thus far. The Gog Magog reference, however, had my interest. If it already happened, then why is it listed here? Growing up, I was told by the writers of eschatology, all of whom were sponsored by the Zionists, that the mass identity of Gog Magog derives from the Soviet Union. Another half-truth. The logic flows as follows. Gog's location is, is described by Ezekiel as residing in the northern parts. Uh, you can see in 38.15 and 39.2. The, the Hebrew word denotes extreme or uttermost parts, and Russia is the nation situated in the extreme or uttermost parts directly north of Yasharel. But these same people don't want you to know is that the communist revolution was a Jewish one. Also, on a flat, motionless plane, the extreme or uttermost parts of the North would be North America uh, when employing an AE map. See for yourself. That's just a side note. Therefore, I decided to go back to the very beginning and start afresh just to see if there was anything overlooked along the way. Lo and behold, I found something. The Gog Magog connection, it meant venturing off through the weeds and the shrubbery, but only because the deception was designed that way. At some point in recent history, our controllers placed the hedges there to keep everybody focused upon the beaten path, when in fact what I'm about to show you was the intended path all along. So we read in Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. 
Now these are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Yepeth, and unto them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Yepeth, Gomer, and Magog. And, um, and then you can see the rest. And then it says here in the Targum, same passage, I don't need to read the whole thing. You see the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, but then follow the following thought. And the names of the provinces, Afriki and Germania, and Medi and uh, Macedonia, and um, Itinia and Asia, and Tharki. Magog was the son of Japheth. But then notice the additional information given by the Aramaic Targum. Magog was most certainly a person, but his land wasn't simply Gog or Magog. It was Germania. That blows the lid off this entire operation right there. The Aramaic Targum never ceases to disappoint. In a little while, we'll look at a map or two. And when I do, you will tell me, if the land of Yasharel is a hoax, then so are the maps of Germania. Touche. But notice how I haven't shown you any maps yet. The only reference so far given is to the land of Magog. Germania. You will then tell me the lands are not written in the same order as the names. That's what I thought at first, too. We'll have to keep reading then. Next verse. And the son of Gomer, Ashkenaz, there it is, and Ripath and uh, Togarma. Genesis 10.3. Gomer was another son of Yepeth and brother of Magog. He had a son named Ashkenaz. Recognize the name? Ashkenazi is the Hebrew word for German. When a Jew is identified as Ashkenazi, they're referring to their Eastern European descent. What they're not doing is tracing their genealogy to Shem through Abraham. No, they're tracing their genealogy through the German peoples to Yepeth. The forefather of the Ashkenazi was Ashkenaz. Today, the Ashkenazim constitute more than 80% of all Jews in the world. Many of them still speak Yiddish. Yiddish may have Hebrew and Aramaic elements to it, but also that of Germanic and Slavic languages. They're not the Yahudim. But the narrative is set up in such a way as to ensure you'll never notice. The sons of Ashkenaz will call you an anti-Semite for recognizing the obvious, that they're not Semitic. Name-calling works, though, because nobody wants to be a Nazi. Ironic, since the Nazis were Germans. And anyways, identifying Ashkenaz with Germany disproves my Magog and Germania theory, no? National borders change all the time. Finding a map which accurately details the exact fence line for Yapis children has never been discovered. But that's beside the point, as they're all neighbors. Saying there's no Magog and Ashkenaz connection is like disqualifying the residents of Compton or Inglewood or possible gang, as possible gang members because they're technically just beyond the recognized border of South Central Los Angeles. Did you notice the Afriki reference in the land settlement? That's not referring to Africa. Africa was the inheritance of Ham. It was the Romans who later claimed its northern settlements as the land of Afri. Pull a word search on that, and the intel net will throw question marks your way. But we know better. It's in the Targum. Afri is a reference to the sons of Yepeth. Geography repackaged into confusion became an art form long ago. We'll have to keep reading. Turning now to um, Jubilees, or Yophilim. The sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, and Madi and Yavin, yeah, you can see the rest. These are the sons of Noah. The book of Jubilees agrees with the sons of Yepeth given to us in Beersheath, Genesis. Once again, we see the listings of brothers Gomer and Magog. I turn there simply to establish that fact. And now, jumping forward a couple of chapters, we read the following. 
And the first portion came forth to Gomer to the east from the north side of the river Tina. And in the north there came forth for Magog all the inner portions of the north until it reaches to the Sea of Miat. That comes from Julie's 9.8. I combed through several old maps for any mention of the Sea of Miat, but with no success. Not even the internet cared to recognize what I was talking about, aside from redirects to Jubilees. The only sea currently residing above Germany is the Baltic Sea. In uh, uh, Agricola and Germania, reportedly written in 98 AD, Tacitus described the Baltic as Mary uh, Subicum. Still no help. If the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea is being referred to, then again, I can find no references nor relation to Miat. Perhaps that is because our maps are a deception. The confusion is intended. Notice something, though. Magog is once again listed as being in the north, probably even to the north of Gomer. According to Jerome in 34, 342 to 420 AD, Magog was situated beyond the uh, uh, Caucasus, near the Caspian Sea. Take a mental note of that. Even maps as late as 1874 agree. You can clearly see Magog inscribed directly above the Caspian Sea. Gomer is positioned stage left, with the Ashkenaz straddling the shores of the Black Sea. You will tell me close, but no cigar. Only problem with that is that the Ashkenazi Jews don't derive merely from that little region directly below the Black Sea. In a post-Mudflood society, the Ashkenazi emerged in the land surrounding the Black Sea and directly above the Caspian straight up into the fatherland, and even as far east as Russia. It's all Magog territory. I then decided to give the wiki the old college try. They have an article on Gog and Magog, and this is what I found. A legend was attached to Gog and Magog by the time of the Roman period that the gates of Alexander were erected by Alexander the Great to repel the tribe. Romanized Jewish historian Josephus knew them as the nation descended from Magog that uh, Japheth tight, as in Genesis, and explain them to be the Scythians. And I'll drop that there and go to my commentary. It says the legendary gates of Alexander were erected by Alexander the Great in hopes of keeping the Gagites and the Magogians out. That's only a little sus suspicious, seeing how Alexander was a flaming homosexual, and the tribal people of Magog were often depicted as forest-inhabiting nudists. Looks like he didn't do a very good job anyhow, as the state of Israel is swarming with Ashkenazi. I'm pretty sure they walked right over the border. There's a couple of contenders for the location of Alexander's Gate, by the way, and our controllers don't want to give it away. The wiki all but admits to the pass of Dariel, a gorge forming a pass between the Russian and Georgian border with the Caspian Sea to the east. That's precisely where Magog was placed on the 1874 map. But then notice what Wikipedia offers us next. It says Josephus knew them as the nation descended from Magog, the Japhetite, and explained them to be the Scythians. You might be asking yourself, who are the Scythians? I had the same question. The answer isn't hard to find. It's been right in front of our faces this entire time. The Scythians and Ashkenazi are the same. So here on a uh, Wiki article for Ashkenaz, it says, well, you can see it there. I'll just read the commentary. Even the wiki agrees. In an article relating Ashkenaz to the sons of Gomer, we quickly learn that the ancients identified the kingdom of Ashkenaz with the Scythians. 
A little later on down the turnpike, as official history goes, we then read how the Scythians became the Slavic people, eventually blending in with the Germans. As if that's not provocative enough, the next two paragraphs offer us the following admission. Um, you could see it there. I'll just read my commentary. Jewish culture arose in the geographical area known as the Rhineland of Western Germany. There it is. The Ashkenaz isn't simply coincidental to the country of origin. No, they're making a direct connection to the people of origin, the Scythians and the Ashkenazi. And then we see here, uh, I underlined Ambrose equated the Scythians and Goths with the biblical Gog and Magog. And by the way, fingering someone as a Scythian was no different in ancient times than calling them a Goth. Some of the earliest references to the Goths derive from Ambrose, who equated the Scythians and Goths with the biblical Gog and Magog. Call them whatever you want, Scythians, Ashkenazi, or Goth, but they're all the same people group, and that is the kingdom of Magog. So, by the way, guys, so when you say something like, that's so Goth, you're... <laughs> Uh, that came out of the Middle Ages where something that was goth was not complimentary, like gothic literature, I mean, uh, gothic uh, architecture. It would be like, according to the official narrative, you know, like if you call a castle gothic, it's like, you know, you're calling it barbarian, basically. All right. Summing this all up, conclusion, the Camp of Yah connection. We'll be done here in a few minutes. To sum this up, Zionism is hungry. The Camp of Yah is their appetite. The Ashkenazi connection to Gog and Magog has been made, and I'm sticking to it. We're on page 40, by the way. Look, we can sit around and argue all day about whether their current residency in the state of Israel proves the day of Yahuwah has or hasn't happened yet. I'm simply a, a, the messenger presenting the evidence. It's up for you to decide. So don't take my word for it. I believe the wrath has already fallen, and everything we're seeing in Zionism is a manufactured narrative. Another way of looking at it is that the Gog-Magog War is a two-time event, as I keep saying, and the upcoming invasion is the second half. How Zionism will convince every nation on earth to make a move on the Camp of Yah is anybody's best guess. If I had to make one, though, then I'll remind everyone that the Illuminati have yet to play their alien invasion card. I'll admit, there are very few passages in Scripture, if any, which connects the descendants of Esau with those of Magog. Perhaps they are altogether two separate people groups. They certainly were at one time. But here's what we do know. The prophets of Scripture have the Edomites inhabiting the land, but only after Yashua and Yehuda are driven into captivity, which then brings about the wrath of Yahuwah. The kingdom of Messiah follows. You know my view. We're looking at a past event. A Gog-Magog war likely played out to coincide with Rome's destruction, yet another connection I made in this paper. We also know there is an invasion of the Camp of Yah after the Millennial Kingdom, and it's led by the people of Gog-Magog, which is the same thing as pointing at the people holding up the Star of Rimphan. The closest connection I have yet to find can be read in the following passage. So 2 Ezra 6, verses 6-10. through 10. Then did I consider these things. And they all were made through me alone, and through none other. By me also they shall be ended, and by none other. Then answered I and said, What shall be the parting asunder of the times? Or when shall be the end of the first and the beginning of it that follows? And he said unto me, From Abraham unto Yitchak, and Yaakov and Esau were born of him. Yaakov's hand held first the heel of Esau. 
for Esau is the end of the world, and Yaakov is the beginning of it that follows. The hand of man is betwixt the heel and the hand. Other question Ezra asking not. Second Ezra 6, 6 or 10. I suppose the passage can be read in one of two ways. The end of Esau could be referring to the time when the kingdom of Yahushua was ushered in. I mean, it was, after all, a reset. The initiation of a new world age. Then again, it may be referring to the next reset, the final reset. Or what Enoch would refer to as the rollover of the tenth week into eternity. Into many more weeks to follow. I'm not here to make your decisions. At the end of the day, I'm only searching of one thing. Hasatan is the father of lies. And we're being lied to about everything. It is at the camp of Yah where both history and his story will collide. Best not to be led on a leash by or found standing next to the people of Gog and Magog when that happens, because Zionism is meeting its swift end at the real Mount Zion. That's my conclusion at any rate. Wicked Esau will be destroyed once and for all, which means we conspiracy theorists will finally be able to hang up the hat and retire. There's an interesting account in the Aramaic Targum which makes mention of the final Gog Magog war, and it reads as follows. And yet the day is still high, and he has much time to come. Behold, uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, it's interesting here, the connection again with Assyria. I need to do a whole thing on this too, the Assyrian connection. He, uh, he journeyed and passed three stations, and he brought with him 40,000 seats of gold, in which the sons of the kings encircled with crowns were sitting. Likewise led with him 200,000 holding swords and spears. He also brought with him 260,000 archers, and 100,000 men ran before him. Sounds like quite the army. The length of his camp was 400 parasangs. parasangs. The neck of his horses, 40 parasangs. The number of his army was 260,000 myriads, lacking one. And here's what I want you to notice. And thus they came upon Abraham when they had cast him into the midst of the burning fire. And thus they shall come with Gog and Magog when the world shall have completed its end to be redeemed. When the first host passed through the Jordan, they drank up the waters which were in the Jordan. When the second host passed through the Jordan, the hoofs of the horses absorbed and drank the waters. When the third host passed through the Jordan, they dug wells and drank the waters. He came and stood and nobbed the city of the priests before the walls of Jerusalem. He answered and said to his army, and pay attention to this again, Is not this the city of Jerusalem against which I have tumultuously brought together all my camps, and on account of which I have oppressed all my providences? Behold, she is smaller and weaker than all the fortified cities of the nations which I have subdued by the strength of my hand. He came up, he stood, and he shook his head. He stretched out and moved his hand against the mount of the house of the sanctuary, which is in, which is in Zion, and against the court which is in Jerusalem. Behold, Yahuwah of the world, Yahuwah Sevaoth, shall cast forth slaughter into his camp as grapes that are trod in a winepress, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the mighty shall be humbled, and he shall slay the mighty men of his camp, who are strong as iron, and those that make war upon the earth shall be cast down. Isaiah 10, 32-34, well, uh, Targum. Those are long uh, three verses, <laughs> I'll tell you. As you can clearly see, Sennacherib surrounding Yerushalayim is here compared with the coming conflict. The king of Gog Magog will lead an assault upon the camp of Yah and boast, Is this the insignificant stronghold that we were so afraid of? 
not good for him and his confederacy at any rate. It ends in fire raining down from heaven. I'll probably have more to say about this event at another time. I'm tempted to go down all sorts of breadcrumb trails, but it's time to call it the night. The reason I brought this passage up is because I wanted to hone in upon our current mile marker in his story and where the invasion of Yah's camp stands in proximity. The Isaiah Targum tells us that we are waiting on, uh, what tells us what we're waiting on, and that is the salvation of every soul. And since the attack has yet to happen, that tells us something. There are still reservations to be made in the kingdom. Even Satan plays by the rules, you see. On the flip of that coin, he will not descend upon the camp until he has everyone else securely fastened and under his control. So when that attack happens, it appears as though any chance of redemption has expired. Those who obstinately deny the reality of the mud flood event and oppose what I'm saying, that the reign of Messiah on the earth already happened and can be physically proven, also seem to fumble over the fact that we're both advocating the same thing, the gospel of the kingdom. The king has a law, and it is the Torah of heaven. It is up to each one of us to choose the blessing or the curse. Only the lawful will gain admittance into his kingdom, whereas it is the lawless who will be led on a leash towards the camp of Yah. See how that works? If you are anxious for your final redemption, then it is your duty to get out there and tell people about the good news of Yehusha HaMashiach, the Savior of Yasharel. Somebody out, on, um, somebody out there on this flat, motionless plane will be the very last soul adopted into the family of the Most High. But who is it? Perhaps you'll be the one to find out. And we read in Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings the Bezorah, that publishes Shalom, that brings good news of good, that publishes Yeshua, that says unto Zion, Your Elohim reigns. All right, guys, thank you for everyone that has hung in there with me. Uh, looks like a few people had to go night-night, but that is it. So I am opening up the floor. I'm exhausted. Uh, I've been talking for two and a half hours now. <laughs> that was a lot of, of uh, talking there. That was uh, excellent work. I really appreciate the thorough research that you did because there was a lot of verses that you tied in on this. And... Uh, you had to you had to do some digging, so I really appreciate that, and and I think you made some great connections uh, of what what you put together. So I mean, that's my overall uh, response, but uh, that 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 was excellent, Noel. Appreciate that. Thank you, and I, I'd like to point out that you know you, when you start to look at a topic like this, you think, oh, well, there's not going to be much there; It'll just be a little few verses here and there, right. and it, and then you become overwhelmed. And I didn't even touch them all i mean i i like i had to pick and choose because there's oh, so there's so many Anybody I know. so uh i mean really amazing i need to go back and read it a few times because there is so much information in it um i i wrote down a couple of verses that caught my attention um, so the, the uh, Obadiah, uh, actually it, we say Obadiah, but Obadiah, okay, um, uh, chapter, uh, 
was it, it, it chapter uh, one? Yeah, it's the first yeah. chapter. Yeah, first chapter, and it's the, ver the verse 20, verse 20. So it's really interesting because he is basically saying that um, um, the diaspora of Jerusalem is coming from Sfarad, and Sfarad is, is Spain. So that's the Spanish uh, Jews, you know. So, so we have Ashkenazi Jews and then Spanish Jews. What, um, what, what verse is this? A verse 20, it says Sfarad. Sfarad in Hebrew is Spain. And he says Tsarfat. Tsarfat in Hebrew is France. Huh, okay. So that's really interesting. It caught my attention, obviously, because I'm a Spanish Jew. Um, so I, and I, <laughs> I, to be honest, I don't think I read Obadiah many times in my life. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, let me go and see because Sfarad, you know, that's like, that's, that's my, um, um, you know, I'm a descendant of Spanish Jews. So, um, so anyway, so I thought it's interesting that he's specifying that the diaspora of Yerushalayim um, is basically in Spain, like it's the Spanish side of the Jews. That is very interesting. Right? Really yeah. interesting. Um, so that was one verse. And then the second verse that caught my attention from the Book of Jubilees, one moment. Ah, okay, that was a good one. So uh, the Book of Ah, oh God, I lost it. Um, where he was, um, I think it's on page twenty-six. You mentioned a verse from the Book of Jubilees, and um, uh, he was giving like the borders, and he. You got to the verse where it said um, "Sea of Miat," and you couldn't find it anywhere. So I think you will be excited to know that I found it for you. So I thought I had a feeling when you read it that they misspell it in the sefer. So I I pulled the Book of Jubilees in Hebrew, and my suspicion was true. I had a feeling it's sea of miut, not not miat. So miut in Hebrew means minor. So then I just went and I googled minor sea to see if something like this exists. And lo and behold, it exists. Uh, it's called mar menor um, or sea or the minor sea, uh, and you can see it. It's a uh, Iberian Peninsula. Located um, southeast of Spain, I'm guessing, because Iberia is Spain, you know. So, but uh, it's called the Minor Sea. Okay. So, so I, I don't know if that could help you at all, <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, you can go back to that verse and look at the maps and maybe it will make sense for you. Um, okay. Just yeah, um, I, okay. So I was trying to follow there. So because I had to find the page. So I think the passage was in Jubilee seven nineteen. No, and um, 
nine eight. And yes, nine eight. I, I mentioned the river Tina and then the Sea of Miat. Miat, exactly. So when I I heard it, I thought for sure it's Miut. So then I, I pulled yes. the, the book in Hebrew and in Hebrew it's they uh see miut miut. Um so then miut is minor, so then I just translated it back to English and I went looking for a minor C and there is uh, <laughs> there sure. is uh minor C. So you can um look at it later and see if it helps you. Okay, uh, thank you. Building the maps. Um, and the last comment that I had was I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that 80% of the Jews in the world are Ashkenazi. And I was kind of surprised. Like, So since I came to America, um, I, I have to say, like, one day if you guys want me to spend like 15 or 20 minutes just talking a little bit about my experience growing up in Israel and explaining about Spanish Jews and Ashkenazi Jews and just giving you some personal insights because I grew up with <laughs> um, with Ashkenazi Jews, okay? So I have a lot to share about them. So when I moved to the U.S., I noticed that I pretty much 80% of the Jews here are definitely Ashkenazi. Um, and to be honest, I I don't have I I've never been attracted to have any interactions or relationships with um, Jewish communities in the U.S. Um, but in Israel, um, it's kind of like 50-50. Uh, like 50% is Ashkenazi and 50 is Spanish. And, and originally, uh, the movement, the Zionist movement was completely Ashkenazi. And they are the ones that kept, um, um, you know, doing all the waves of immigration um, to Israel. Uh, but they needed more, they needed, literally, they needed flesh. They needed more people uh, to toil the land and to fight the wars, you know. Uh, so they definitely um, uh, were very manipulative and they finally succeeded in, in convincing uh, the Spanish descendant Jews to leave their very comfortable, like my family came from a very comfortable place um, and then they ended up, um, I mean, it's, it's a movie can be done on what they went through once they moved to Israel, you know. So they ended up uh, attracting a lot of Spanish Jews that didn't support that movement originally um, and basically got sucked into it. Um, so in Israel, it's about 50-50. So I was wondering where you got the the 80% of the Jews all over the world that are Ashkenazi. Sure. Um, it came from just... Now, you know, because I have not uh, walked through my neighborhood and screamed with a megaphone, you know, any Jews here? Can we do a head count? You know... Uh, <laughs> nor have I done, nor have I done a head count on a, a personal survey myself. This information just comes straight out. Like I do like, um, 
you know, Google searches on like, you know, Ashkenazi Jews and how many and so on. And that's the number I'm getting, the 80%. And <laughs> now whether it's correct or not, I don't know. But that's the number officially that I'm seeing from the internet telling me uh, that. Now, yeah. now the 50-50 is interesting. And it's, it's kind of like I said uh, when I started that, you know, I was warned by, you know, advice from several people not to give generalizations, but it's impossible to know because scripture just says, because of these Edomites, um, I'm going to do thus and thus. And, you know, even in Yahusha's day, we know that the Edomites were there, uh, Herod and some of the priests and the controllers and so on. How much of the population were they? I don't know. You know, was it 10%? You know, fifty percent. I I don't know. I obviously we can't say right. So, um, yeah, yeah. When it comes to that, it's a challenge because even if you look at, uh, let's say, the Americans, we know that all Americans aren't on the same page. So, if we go to war and we're warring another country for whatever reason, uh, there's a lot of Americans that don't support that, but. You know, we're still Americans, and Americans are at the in in the war. So that's what makes it tough when you're talking about you know, when you're you're covering like a, a a whole group of people under that umbrella, and it, it it makes it a challenge to the for the accountability part because we know yeah. that not everybody agrees, but they're still somewhat well. They're still part of that entity. Yeah, I I can tell you know really I one day if you want me to share a little bit you you will be shocked at what I have to at what I I can tell you about what even I when I grew up what I went through I mean it's unbelievable how they treated uh, for decades they controlled Israel every level the education system. Um, the the government, um, the money, everything, and they treated um, Spanish Jews as garbage, literally garbage. That we we couldn't even go to university. I mean, like the discrimination was unbelievable. They they didn't even um, marry, like they would only marry each other. They and only lately. Um, the a lot of the um, 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 glass uh, walls, okay, between us are breaking because the younger generations are kind of like, uh, um, you know, not uh, following uh, the discrimination anymore. But but even now, mostly Spanish marry Spanish and Ashkenazi marry Ashkenazi. Uh, it, it's just unbelievable. No one knows all of this. It's almost like it's like the dirty laundry that you keep at home and you don't air it outside. Isn't it amazing that, you know, you have the Holocaust narrative and, you know, according to the narrative, the, the Jews are, you know, thrown in, the furnaces destroyed and then they get their homeland and they're discriminating against the absolutely spirit. and that's yeah. what we always yeah and that's what we always said that we don't understand uh, i mean they are the ones supposedly that that survived the the most horrible discrimination and yet they discriminated 
ruthlessly. Well, uh, thank you for sharing all that. And um, I'll have to, yeah, get you to talk about your, um, you know, your experiences one of these times. But thank you for sharing. Was there anybody else here that had any any thoughts? It's okay. It's a very controversial subject matter. You don't have to speak up. But well, with that, I'm going to officially close for the night. I am very thankful that Josh records these, and you know this has gone really late tonight. And I'll, of course, I'll be here still to talk with you guys. But uh, we are closing. Uh, shop, uh, closing school for the night, and we'll do this again next Thursday. Also, this upcoming Sabbath, uh, Rob, Michael, and I will be going over this, you know, the same text. And I'm going to be on travel, so it's going to be kind of interesting. I'll be speaking from a hotel with my children in the same room, so we'll see how that goes down. But uh, looking forward to seeing all of you there. Shalom, everybody. We are closed for the night, and you guys can talk away. <laughs> <laughs>